of cars and they're trying to get through. Hello, my name is Tom Chick. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for Drive. I am here with Christian. Oh God, uh, Christian Malarkey. Yeah, who cares? Where's the deluxe version? Ah, very good. And Kelly Wand, who might have a drive-related tagline for us. Kelly Wand? Oh, this is more related to a trailer I saw before Drive. Get what you just smeared on my face with your hand out of your bong. That's close. Out of my face. That's a close approximation. Into Uh, your hand. Kelly Wand, would you like to tell me where you received your training? No. <laughs> That's what she said. Rosita Sherman Way. <laughs> uh, Dingus, let's let's talk Drive. Although we could talk that uh, Game of Shadows, Throne, Throne Shadows. What it is, Game of Shadows, right? Sherlock Holmes, Game of Shadows, this Christmas, starring Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law, and directed by Guy Ritchie. Do I have all that right? No? Yes. <laughs> I, I think that's all that needs to be said. In that, yeah, with exactly that much time delayed, Dingus <laughs> thinks over the question. Uh, okay, Tom, I, Tom, I want to hear your Straw Dogs review. But you don't have to do it now if you don't want to. Uh, Straw Dogs is exactly what you would expect from a Rod Lurie film. What's he made? So Rod Lurie, Rod Lurie, Kelly Wan, should be an inspiration for guys like you and me. He was a movie critic turned director. And I think the first thing he did was this uh, – I'm not going to remember the name of it. It's where Kevin Pollack play, plays the president who's like uh, – oh, Deterrence? Is that the name of it? I think it's a it's – Yeah, like it's, a, it's Deterrence, I think. Yeah, right. and it's a roadhouse kind of like drama where the president is snowed in at a roadhouse and he's got the suitcase to start a, a nuclear war or whatever. And does he push the button? And, and I'm pretty sure Kevin Pollack plays the president. So he did that. But I think he gained a little notoriety when he managed to talk Joan Allen into playing the, the vice president to Jeff Bridges' president in a, another presidential drama called uh, The Contender. Uh, and The Contender wasn't bad, <laughs> heavy-handed, but a great Joan Allen performance. But then he begins this downward spiral into just general retardedness. Uh, and and the, I think the first I saw of that was uh, this horrible story about uh, – Oh rats! Who was, uh, who was the woman who uh, who the CIA agent Valerie Plame? A Valerie Plame story where uh, uh, what was it called? Kate. So Kate Beckinsale is the reporter who discovers Valerie Plame's identity, and Valerie Plame in this movie is played by Vera Farmiga, who's excellent in it. And I forget the name of the movie, but it was this terrible like political drama where Kate Beckinsale refuses to divulge her sources. Uh, so Sounds anyway. Hot. Uh, you know what it does, but it's not like you would think. Hey, Kate Beckinsale in jail? Yeah, sign me up for that. Uh, but no, it's just it's just terrible. Rod Lurie is just such a he's so just tin-eared, heavy-handed, uh, and it, it all shows in Straw Dogs. So there's no there's really nothing to say about Straw Dogs other than that it's it's awful. Who's the girl in Straw Dogs? So Kate Bosworth, who I actually don't know right. that. Right, it's Superman. It's it's the oh, same. Oh, that's right. Oh my it's God, Lois Lane and her husband from Superman. I didn't even think of that. Oh, that's so funny. Well, and it's the same characters and like, ah, oh, yeah, honey, that's Superman. He's 
he's okay, but I can I can handle this. <laughs> that kind of works, and then think of Stellan Skarsgård as the Superman uh, character. Oh, I forgot he's in it. Okay, sorry, go on. But uh, so I, I remember oh, uh, uh, Alexander Skarsgård, his son. Thanks, Dingus. <laughs> but uh, I remember though Kate Bosworth. I, I know her from. Uh, this is a movie kind of like Priest, that thing with Paul Bettany, in that it's not any good, but it has a great visual look to it, and it's just spirited enough to overcome being terrible. And it's a movie called Warrior's Way, about a samurai who comes to the Old West, and he takes up with a basically a small town that has a, a circus or a carnival <laughs> that they're trying to build, and they end up fighting a bunch of samurais. And, and Kate Bosworth is actually very spirited as the, the plucky sort of sidekick to the samurai. Um, but she's just terrible in, in Straw Dogs. James Marsden is just so awful. And Straw Dogs, of course, is a great Sam Peckinpah movie about the implications of violence and sexuality and the uncomfortable cross-section there. And, and to let a guy like Rod Lurie loose on that, it just comes across as as just so crass and, and shallow. You know, there have been these remakes of these 1970s shockers like I Spit on Your Grave, uh, Last House on the Left, and now Straw Dogs. And it's just they're just so much like dirtier and lurid than the originals were even. But they missed the whole point somehow too. Exactly, they missed the point, and they they oddly just sort of like trying to make like like rape and violence, like this trying to make that cross section of violence and sexuality titillating and still kind of sanctifying it a little. It's just it's it's just horrible. It's just it's boring. You know what? It's 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 worse than horrible. It's boring. Absolutely, yeah. Like, at least and you watch the Wes Craven, Last House on the Left, which is a remake of Virgin Spring, a great Ingmar Bergman movie. You watch Last House on the Left, and it's horrible, but also a little shocking, and there, there's some sort of bite to it. But the remake of it, there's none of that bite. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just boring, yeah. Uh, so anyway, why are I... Well, because uh, I don't know, because I'm never, I'm never going to see this movie, and I want it ruined. I just, I'd just rather hear you talk about it for two minutes. Okay, so here you go. Uh, James Marsden. So Dustin Hoffman, of course, is a mathematician in the original one, and he goes to Ireland. And, and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the tension in the original Straw Dogs, the whole fish out of water, where there's an American in Ireland. Uh, here, it's, it's Marsden. <laughs> it's James Marsden, but he's not a mathematician. He's a Hollywood screenwriter, you see. He's not Jewish. He's And, and he's, he, he, went, he went to Harvard. You know, they call him Harvard in Hollywood. And instead of going to Ireland, it's the Deep South. I'm not even uh, sure they specify. Uh, is it New Orleans? Our- it's like Mississippi, Louisiana, whatever. So instead, it's about this this... Harvard-educated, Hollywood-successful screenwriter going into the Deep South uh, and dealing with how everybody's ignorant and a redneck uh, down there. So it's the screenwriter of the movie's blowjob to himself. To, and Yeah, exactly, to himself. I could do this. <laughs> yeah, and to how horrible people are in the South. And, and Rod Lurie, I'm pretty sure, did the adaptation himself. Uh, uh. So, so, yeah, there's nothing to recommend it. Like, there's no good performances. Uh Alexander Sarsgaard is like you watch him and you think he deserves better, but everyone else in the movie, James Woods is like the racist coach who incites all the violence, is just like chewing scenery and uh, yeah. I always thought Straw Dogs was like an Irish expression or something that you just never hear in the movie for some reason. You know what? Do they not explain it in the original? I don't think so. Because but I just <laughs> thought that for some reason, like a Reservoir Dogs, like oh yeah, they're. Well, you know, from the you might think that, but no. In in the this American remake that Rod Lurie did, James Marsden sits down and explains the title and how it has to do with uh, these ceremonial dogs in ancient China. 
<laughs> that they that they then burned and how they meant nothing. How they they were like stand-ins for glory that just got burned up in a fire. And, and what? exactly. And so that's what it means. That's what it means. So it's a Chinese thing. It's a Chinese thing. And the way it applies to this Rod Lurie remake is that all the rednecks were once glorified football players on their high school football teams who uh. are forgotten about after they graduate. <laughs> So so work that into a monologue, and you get a sense for the level of writing in the Straw Dogs remake. Those dudes get fat, though, and boozy, and they're easy to take out in a fight. And Marsden would be they'd, they'd be easy pickings. For uh, not if they're construction workers. Construction workers are lean and mean. Well, the Alexander Sarsgaard's construction workers are certainly lean and mean from all their work on True Blood, where they have to be all thin and everything, of course. But the other rednecks are definitely a little dumpier and easier to take. Yeah. Uh so in in uh, in the original Straw Dogs, I remember, and maybe this is just because I'm into computer games, but I remember the end of the original Straw Dogs almost feeling a little bit like an RTS or a tower defense game where Dustin Hoffman is in the, the building and he's got to concoct these various defenses for each of the different approaches. Uh, and there's a little bit of that here, but it's all just lifted directly out of the original Straw Dogs. You know, one guy, he ties him up when he tries to get through the window. Uh, another guy, he he, uh, he conveniently boils some, some oil on the stove so he can splash him. Uh, there is, of course, a bear trap involved. That's the big finale is that somebody gets hit on the head with a bear trap. Uh, there is one gun that they have indoors. Um, so, it, yeah, and all of that is just strictly lifted out of uh, the original. So, yeah, I don't recommend it. And what, what, yeah, so I wouldn't, I'm sorry we even talked about it because I feel like I've given it more attention than it deserves. Uh, but it's just terrible. Rod Lurie, stop, go back to writing about movies and stop trying to make them. That's my advice. Let's talk, though, about something else. Tingus, why don't you tell folks what we're going to talk about this week without spoiling anything? Now that I've spoiled Straw Dogs, why don't you tell us about the movie that we saw this week without spoiling it? All right. I think I will. This week we saw a little movie called Drive, Mm -hmm. a 2011 American San Fernando Valley action drama movie (laughs) about a Hollywood stunt driver who moonlights as a wheelman. The film was directed by Nicholas Winding Refn and was written by Hossein Amini. It stars Ryan Gosling, Kerry Mulligan, Albert Brooks, and Brian Cranston. The film is rated R for strong, bloody violence, mm. language, mm. and some nudity. All right, well, Kelly Wand, let's go ahead and spoil a little bit of Drive. Uh, for folks who haven't seen it, we just want to warn you, Kelly Wand is now going to talk specific plot points that might even spoil the movie. Kelly, could you maybe give us like a synopsis for what happens uh. in Drive? Wait, Dingus did his, right? I forgot. <laughs> yeah, so Dingus yes, I, I erroneously called it the San Fernando Valley movie. All right, all right. It's partly that, but it's other things as well. It's other valleys. Right. Drive I love says, it. My, um, let me just slap my belly for a minute. Hold on. All right, go ahead. <laughs> Are you done? Yep. Tom, is your cat done? Uh, I think he's done. He might he might have a few points to add as you're doing the synopsis. So oh, synopsis. All right, all right. This might be a collaborative synopsis with my cat and you for the movie and Drive. The Go. And, uh, okay, yeah. So uh, they put Jay Moore in the Captain America machine, and uh, Ryan Gosling came out. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> I've never seen that guy before, I don't think. Ryan Jay Gosling. Moore or Ryan Gosling? All right. I've never gossled, I don't think. You haven't seen part of Lars and the Real Doll. And then Lou Valentine, if you... Oh. Eat, uh, it's Kelly Wong. Yeah. I didn't watch it yet. I'm very busy. When movies have Valentine in the title, it, it, I, I'll do that at week, next week. You didn't see that uh, True Believe, not True Believer, what was it called? The one where he plays a, a neo-Nazi, like his, or or the thing with uh, Sandra Bullock and Michael Pitt. Uh, what was that called? <laughs> yeah, that one I saw. <laughs> You've never seen a Ryan Gosling movie? No. All right. I don't think so. Okay. It's like Gary Oldman. He looks like uh, Tim Roth, kind of. Well, this this will be interesting then. All right, so so go ahead. So Jay Moore steps into the Captain America. Oh my Gosling, Cherry Pop, yeah. So okay. he's in a building at night and he's on a phone and he's all, "You have a five minute window. Anything happens through the window during those five minutes is extra. Windshields double extra. You can touch the dancers. They can't touch you. First toothpicks free. Second one's a thousand. You'll find two of them in the ashtray by the armrest. One of them's been used. The other one's extra." Regular unleaded's extra. Extra unleaded, same price, five minutes. The minutes can touch each other. This phone number only works tomorrow for five minutes. Extra. One in the morning, three at five, last one at five also. Questions, comments, criticisms. There's a box in the back seat. Just fill those out. You might be eligible to win a free cruise to Encino. <laughs> so, what, Kelly Wad, do you know how much you sound like Keanu Reeves when you're doing that voice? I I have many modes because I am a versa. The first thing you learn about writing is all writing is rewriting, and so I have a lot you know, of voices I can do. Kelly, one no, it's 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 just the, I think the fact that you are from Los Angeles. When you do your uh, other actor voice, it's a dead ringer for Keanu Reeves. Well, remember I mean, my Chinese guy voice from last week. You're Larry Fishburne from Contagion, Keanu Reeves. It's, it, it's, I'm not criticizing. I think it's a wonderful thing. So, Well, we're all melting pot, so my being able to do every nationality makes sense. Biblically. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Even when you say, I have many modes, it's like, I have many modes. Modes. Dingus, leave the Keanu to Kelly Wand. I apologize. short for modalities. <laughs> all right, so Kelly Wand, I'm sorry. I didn't want to derail you. Uh, so Ryan Gosling says a bunch of stuff I said earlier, and right. then uh, he gets this silver impala from the dad on Breaking Bad in the middle, and he waits outside uh, a place. He waits outside a place. <laughs> <laughs> this one was written in a hurry, so it's actually a little sloppier even than normal. And shots are fired, and the guys run out with these bags, and the cops chase him with helicopters, but he tricks them by turning his headlights off and driving to the sports arena, and the cops are setting up barricades at the exits to the parking lot, and he puts on his driving gloves now and goes, Gentlemen, our business is concluded. I am done talking for the moment. There's a tip jar in the ashtray. Good night. And they're all, What the fuck? You're leaving? We're robbing the sports arena. We hired you to drive us the fuck out of here. And he taps his watch and goes, five minutes. So the next day, uh, he goes to work at the movie set, and he puts on a Kevin Spacey mask, and he gets in a police car and drives it off a bridge and flips it over twice, and the car blows up, and then a helicopter falls on it. And his friend fire extinguishes his balls out and goes, that was perfect, except... <laughs> I agree, that was perfect, except for that one part. <laughs> Just call me driver. And the dad friend goes, don't you mean crasher? <laughs> JK, whoop, your other ball there. Squate, squate. That's him uh, doing the fire extinguisher. 
So uh, his cute neighbor, Michelle Williams, uh, breaks down in a parking lot, so he gives her a ride, and he carries her kid to bed, but her husband comes out of prison, so he eats pie, but the guy gets beaten up by Albert Brooks' sidekick, Ron Perlman, who also broke Breaking Bad's pelvis, but not his leg, even though he limps. And even though Michelle Williams' ex-husband is Mexican, Albert Brooks is Jewish, Ron Perlman's a caveman, and they work for a dude back east who's Italian. They want Michelle Williams' husband, whose name is Standard, because he's Mexican, to rob a pawn shop, get shot in the parking lot, along with this girl. Nobody knows who the fuck she is. But things go wrong. Not the shooting dead in the parking lot part. That part surgically executed. But the drivers of the second car forget to grab the money until Ryan Gosling started the car and driving around on streets. Luckily, he outsmarts them by driving backwards, which distracts them into hitting a stunt prop. And Ryan Gosling's stunt drivers all... Isn't my job interesting enough for you people without having to add a bunch of mafia shit? See, I broke the fourth wall, Tom. <laughs> I see. That's what that was. Like the actual stunt driver. You are a veritable Bertold Brecht. Apparently, he's the screenwriter, too, in my joke. <laughs> I guess that was... A, I just figured I didn't need to explain that. Uh so, yeah, anyway, uh, Ryan Gosling asked Michelle Williams if she wanted to see something, and she's all, yeah! So they're driving down in the reservoir in this puddle, and she's all, wow! And he's all, yeah. And she's all, um, so what did you want to show me? And he's all, uh, this. And she's all, oh, yeah, concrete. What's your name again? And he's all, driver. My friends call me the driver. If I had friends. Or a phone. <laughs> so he's with the other girl in a hotel room. And they're watching the news, and the newscaster's all, Yeah, some guy got shot to death in front of a pawn shop, but on a sadder note, no money was stolen, even though we're covering this as a big news story. And a mafia spokesman had no comment at this time, as they were waiting to see how things shake out at a hotel room on Sentinel and Rosecrans. <laughs> this is Stinky Wiggles reporting live from the TV screen in Ryan Gosling's hotel room. <laughs> so he turns it off, and he goes... I smell something fishy. And she covers her legs, but he pulls the blanket off, and she's a mermaid. And she's all, I don't know what you're talking about. So he slaps her and goes, tell me the truth or I'm going to hurt you. And she's all, ow, shouldn't you have said that before the slap? And he's all, call your boss and tell him I don't like risking my life in action scenes for money, except when there's cameras rolling. And she's all, okay, okay, let me just wash this bruise you just gave me off. <laughs> oh, it doesn't look so bad, actually. Good thing, too, because only the right half of my head is in sure. Blam. A shotgun blows her left head part off. But Ryan Gosling knows already because his cell phone's ringing. And she was calling her boss on hers, so I guess they gave her his cell phone number somehow and hoped she didn't need to use it until the shotgunning was over. <laughs> <sighs> so Ryan Gosling kills everybody and doesn't wear a mask, even though it's broad daylight and shotguns are loud. And there's a family of six watching him through a giant hole in the wall from one of the shotgun blasts. Oh, yeah. Michelle Williams has a Mexican kid, even though she's British and blonde. And Ryan Gosling bonded with him earlier by taking him to the garage where he works and going, Ha! You blinked. And the kid goes, Yeah, I do that when I poop my pants. And he looks down and we hear this mulchy noise. And he goes, Sorry about your toolbox. And Ryan Gosling goes, That's okay. I'll just pretend I'm doing an oil change. So he keeps the money at the garage, because he knows they'll never look for it there. And Breaking Dad's all, don't worry, my horoscope says today will be my lucky day, although lucky had quote marks around it. Seems weird that the stars would express themselves with air quotes, but what do I look like? 
But I did read an actual headline that said, NASA discovers planet from Star Wars. Hey, did I ever tell you about that time I was at Disneyland with Ben Stiller and his family? And this dude comes up and goes, hey, dude, it's Ben Stiller. Look, Marty, it's Ben Stiller. Man, with Ben Stiller, it's like you just look at him and you know it's him. That's the fucking stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say, ever. You just look at him and you know it's him. What the fuck's that even mean? Anyway, I might have mentioned your neighbor and her kid to Robert Brooks. It seemed to make sense at the time. And Ryan Gosling's all, I have nothing to say. And Breaking Dad's putting all his shit in a suitcase because he lives at the garage and he keeps everything he owns there. And he has a suitcase there at the garage. And Albert Brooks shows up and goes, going somewhere? And Breaking Dad's all, uh... And Albert Brooks slices his arm. Slices his arm. Albert Brooks slices his arm and goes, don't worry, there's no pain starting now. And the guy goes, uh, it kind of hurt when you did that. And Ryan Gosling drowns Ron Perlman at the beach. And he wears a mask that time, even though there are no witnesses, and it's kind of hard to drown big shaggy dudes while wearing a rubber mask. So Ryan Gosling goes back to his apartment and tells Michelle Williams, Uh, I got a briefcase full of money, if you're interested. And she slaps him, and he goes, Uh, so if I didn't have the money, what do I get for that? And she's all, I seem to have bad choices in men in my movies. No offense. Except for Shia LaBeouf, obviously. He's not technically a man. So they go down in the elevator, and a guy gets on with them who's wearing a gun. So Ryan Gosling tricks the gun by kissing Michelle Williams for ten minutes as the elevator goes down three floors, and then caving in the gunman's skull with his foot for another twenty minutes before the door closes. And she's all, wow, this elevator ride was the most romantic experience of my life. Except for the kiss. That was kind of weird. And Albert Brooks calls him and goes... Okay, so you, me, and the Goyle... <laughs> That's how Brooks talks. <laughs> you, me, and the Goyle are the only three characters still alive. So come meet me at a Chinese restaurant in the middle of the day. Bring the money, and don't wear anything knife-proof. Albert Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> so they meet and have some egg foo young, and Ryan Gosling goes, So are you like the same movie producer character from that Nick Nolte movie where they cut all your singing out? And Foster Brooks goes, Look, your girlfriend will be safe. You can trust me but you'll be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life. And Ryan Gosling goes, or the rear view, every three to 12 seconds, nothing changes. And Albert Brooks goes, every three to 12 this, and stabs him in the stomach. But Ryan Gosling foresaw that and stabs him in the neck. And then he drives off and leaves Albert Brooks's dead body in the parking lot and the duffel bag with the million dollars spilling out of it and blowing away in the wind, along with a note that says, Million dollars inside. Please do not steal. Save for mafia guys from East Coast so they don't bother and or kill my ex-girlfriend. Thanks, driver. The end. First of all, Kelly Wand, you were our biggest champion of Carrie Mulligan. Why are you slighting her that way? I don't slight her. Well, that's actually right. It's not a slight to call her Michelle Williams, and she did look very Michelle Williams-esque, but I would have thought you, of all people, would appreciate the presence of Carrie Mulligan. Would appreciate the presence of Carrie Mulligan. When when the next Ryan Gosling-Michelle Williams movie they make, I'll call her Carrie Mulligan. Okay, and it'll be a neat... Once you finally see Blue Valentine, you can get a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah. No, I love Carrie Mulligan. Look at her. How can I not love that? What's not to love? I know, she was adorable, yeah. All right. She's always adorable. Okay. Uh, Let's get Dingus in here. (laughs) I also thought she was adorable, and so is Michelle Williams. (laughs) Yeah. Let me me throw this out. What would you guys say 
If I said, what does this movie have in common with Super 8? Hmm. Because I kept thinking of Super 8 as I watched this movie. And do, do you know why? Because there was uh, they put the engine back in the car in the <laughs> Super 8. And this movie had a car in it or two. No, Dingus, you got anything? Because uh, I have no idea. What are you going? What are you they driving? They kept at? cutting away from the kills. No, yeah. Super Eight was a love letter to Steven Spielberg movies. Oh, all right. This I thought was such an affectionate, and I thought well done love letter to to action movies and eighties action movies in general, but Michael Mann in specific. This just yeah. felt to me like such a, uh, you know, this is how Michael Mann used to do like these these movies back in the eighties, and I think specifically of a movie called Thief. Uh, with James Caan, um, from the, the soundtrack to the way that it's shot to the, the way there's minimal dialogue uh, to the way it kind of unfolds to some of the violent scenes. I just thought, you know, if, if you want to make a movie that, that recalls movies that influenced you, this is the way to do it. Super 8 was, was a fumbled attempt to say, hey, here are the movies that really affected me as a kid. I'm going to do a tribute to them. Whereas I thought Drive was a great tribute to, I'm assuming, the, the movies that Nicholas Winding Refn really liked uh, when he was younger. Is either of you buying that? Sure. Okay. But Michael Mann's character is kind of more emotive. And this seemed more, like, even heartless, in a good way, than a Michael Mann movie. Like, I don't think... It, James Conn and Thief wasn't all closed off like uh, mm -hmm. Ryan Gosling character was supposed to be. Okay. I'm just saying it's different. I mean, it doesn't have to be a fucking carbon copy of it. But yeah, you're right. Well, even even the font, you know, the the moment this movie started and it had that pink squiggly font, I was like, what? Because I, I was my first thought was like, it's like a sixteen candles thing. I was like, yeah, exactly. I thought ex exactly <laughs> of sixteen candles or that Jeff Goldblum into the night movie. Ah, yes, very good, Dingus. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I thought that too. Because that has a long drowning scene in it too. Uh, to me, it Can't it reminds me more of of Man with No Name movies than that that Michael Mann kind of thing, but I can see what you're driving at. Well, it's a very, it's a very Western. I mean, it's actually not even a Western. I mean, I mean, I would say it's a, a sort of a, a subgenre of Western and that's the avenging hero with his badass car. You know, we've seen a couple of these movies in the last year, uh, faster and, uh, uh, drive angry. Um, and I think Mad Max is one of the quintessential versions of that. Uh, but it is this very sort of, yeah, Western man with no name, and instead of having a trusty horse, he's got a, a badass car. Uh, My only complaint... Oh, go on. Well, and that, that gets to you, to what you were talking about, Kelly Wan, where the hero wasn't very emotive. I mean, where he was just this sort of cold... You know, he had this sort of closed-off, gunslinger, laconic quality to him. Absolutely. Uh, but he is emotive in his own way, and that came across, too. Like, he's not like the Jason Priestley character in Cold-Blooded. See that movie? Was genuinely closed off. No, what is that? The assassin. You didn't see that movie? I don't think so. He's like the he's like this hitman. There's a scene where he he goes to Michael J. Fox's house and he asks him, "Hey, do you think girls like this or this or?" Go, yeah, maybe this. And he says, "Huh, interesting." And then he just shoots the whole family like at the breakfast table. <laughs> he's not Ryan Gosling. Isn't nearly as mean. I don't think he would do that. No, but he hits a chick. Well, you know, Ryan Gosling answer. cries a few times in this movie. I mean, you yeah. see you see his eyes welling up. You see one yeah. specific time where tears coming down his face. I mean, I think there's a there's a lot of emotion. I think emotive is a good way to put it because he's not letting that spill forth. 
uh, and you don't have a, a sense of what his history is other than the way he's acting right now, which is, I mean, which is why I give it that man, man with no name kind of thing. The guy, the stranger who rides into town and then has to rescue one specific woman and, and take vengeance and then get out. Right. Right. Um, so I, I, go ahead, Kelly one. I just want to say my only complaint with the movie, cause I really liked it is that there wasn't any driving in the third act. I was hoping for like one last, cause I liked his I like movies about process, like how you break into a safe and how he, like the way he saw his job and his work. Right. And towards the end, he's not really challenged driving wise. <laughs> so I, felt, I know that's probably the conventional boring. Well, I, I, I mean, I really liked it as well, and and my complaints are are very minor. But I felt the same way about the whole like where. At first, I thought he was going to burst into Nino's and gun down Ron yeah. Perlman, and, and, and I thought that was the point of the mask. And then he gets in the car, and I'm like, okay, we're going to see more of that process stuff like you're talking about, Kelly Wand. And he ends up just, like, knocking the car off onto the beach yeah. and then drowning Ron Perlman and still wearing the mask for, as far as I could tell, no discernible reason. Right. Um, and and I that was a head-scratcher to me. I mean, everything felt so well-crafted up to this point that I didn't understand – why the the movie was he was just... doing it as a movie stunt? Is there some level we're not appreciating it? Now? You know what? Push that angle. Sell, sell me on that, Kelly Wand. Go. <laughs> Are we underthinking that when he has to do something precision time, like ram a car off the... Uh, he has to ram it off the embankment down into the beach. It's like a movie stunt, so he has to wear the movie mask to get into that zone instead of his... Uh, I'm um, the garage mechanic guy. I yeah, I'm sorry you're not selling me, Kelly Wand. It's a valiant attempt, but I'm not buying it. <laughs> I just can't put the words together because I'm a buffoon. But well, I, that's. I mean, I I love that opening scene. I loved how it played on suspense rather than action, and how he was very meticulous about about timing, about turning off the lights and pulling in behind a car, and how it wasn't just like gunning the engine. Like I loved that early process scene. Um, and I, I wish that it had more payoff in the longer run. It's like that beach scene only works if he knows what kind of car they're when they were driving in advance. He's like, if he thinks about, okay, I can't use the Impala to do that. Like you got in a little like mafia of the video game. It's like, oh, I got to pull out the silver bullet or whatever. Well, I think it's actually the opposite. It the scene happens because he doesn't know what's going to happen. I mean, that that him putting on the mask, which is a head scratcher, until you kind of. Think it through. He doesn't know how it's going to play out. So he walks up to the window or the door of Nino's. He doesn't know if he's going to have to go in there. He doesn't know what's going to go on. He doesn't know what he's going to see in that window. And often this this uh, invincible hero wades into a, a building and shoots everybody with this great plan. But he doesn't he doesn't know that that's what he's going to see. And he backs off and he waits. And then the opportunity presents itself. So it turns out the mask, I think, is wholly unnecessary, but he doesn't know that going in. But I kind of wish, like, he had then, and, you know, this is me second-guessing whatever uh, Nicholas Winding Refn is going for, and I don't want to do that. But I kind of wish, you know, drowning Ron Perlman in the surf is a weirdly intimate finale. (laughs) I'm like, why are you wearing that goofy-looking mask? And it sort of cuts away from that, too. It doesn't let us really get to enjoy that. Um and, and I, it's a long know, shot of it. Yeah, yeah, which is odd. And I, you know, I, I trust Nicholas Winding Refn's instincts, and I suspect he had a reason for it. I just wish I understood it better. Uh, and that's a character we really wanted to see get killed because that's yes. the guy who fucked up Brian Cranston. Like, yep. we want to see this guy get it. We're excited. Like, oh, yeah. what's he gonna do to him? Yeah. Oh no, something in the water. 
Okay, but let's not let's not harsh on the movie too much. So that's there. There were these weird little things. What what did you guys appreciate about this as it was unfolding? What were some you of know, the early things where you like this is I'm really going to dig this? Let me let me jump right up and say and agree with you, Tom, because this is, my first thought was uh, after that whole opening sequence when the credits started, this is how you fucking begin a movie, and and I just want to give praise to Nicholas Winding Refn for or Nicholas Winding Refn. I'm not sure how you say his name. Um, for doing that instead of doing what hacks do, which is the 12 hours earlier kind of thing, which he doesn't do. He takes his time. The whole opening sequence is instead of just dumping us into an action sequence and making us drive around uh, super fast and not know who anybody is, the whole thing is based on getting us, letting us know the character and building suspense. I just, I loved that opening sequence. I just freaking loved it. And, you know, I, I kind of laughed a little bit when you talked about um, the car pulling in behind the truck and turning its lights off, because that made me think of a story you told once um, about your misspent youth, Tom. But um, but I just, I just loved all of the driving in that opening sequence. I kept thinking, is this going to break into a super crazy action scene? Are we going to have a lot of shooting and crazy driving? And it never did that, but it was so... It would just kept upstepping the tension. I, oh, I'm just crazy about that opening. They just perfect no opening. For any of it. That's one of the things I loved, how, how minimal it was on dialogue and how how uh, Winding Refn just let the scenes breathe. He just let actors be. Uh, I love how much he did that. Yeah. You think at first that the guy that he has the sports on because he's a sports fan too, and it's just part <laughs> of his thing. Like, oh, oh I didn't even catch that, Kelly Wand. Oh yeah, my god. You think that's one of those goofy, quirky? Oh, he's a quirky yeah, guy. Like, has to listen to the Lakers. Because nice. I totally was thinking of uh, of Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant, where Harvey Keitel the whole time is concerned with a, a baseball game, and you, I totally didn't catch until you just now mentioned that Kelly Wan. He was doing it to time the uh, to yeah. park the car. Oh my God! Yeah. Thanks for making me appreciate the movie better. I'm a little too dense for this movie. <laughs> that's the moment I went. All right, this movie. Like I can't. Whatever. No matter how bad it sucks for the rest of the movie, I'll have to like it because it did that. <laughs> like, that was so perfect. I agree with Dingus. It's one of the greatest movie openings ever. Uh, and it, it also just makes the eruptions of violence that much more meaningful, I, I think. Uh, you know, you, you sort of made fun of that elevator scene, and it was really stylized and really weird. Uh, and I liked it. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. You know, it, here is this laconic, non-emotive character, and this is th th that elevator slow motion and the way that uh, they played with the lighting there. It, you know, it's as stylized as something like Punch Drunk Love, where the you know the lighting it's like a stage play almost. They're going to mess with the lighting to reflect the character's state of of mind. Uh -huh. And what this was, it was this moment of great passion for this otherwise dispassionate character. Where you, you know he's gonna he's gonna kiss the girl and stomp in some dude's head, and it's part it's the same moment for him in a way, and, and in that same confined space. I loved that moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my my audience, I, I think I saw it on opening night, and I think my audience was very confused because uh, it got some like laughs. Where uh, you know if I'd been watching it at home, I would have just been blown away. But you know watching it with people who showed up, I think expecting an, a Ryan Gosling action movie, uh, they didn't quite know what to make of some of that stuff. What's um, Ryan Gosling action movie? <laughs> well, you know, there is that. He really did get his start. I wish I could think of the name of it with this, like, standard by-the-numbers murder mystery thriller thing with Sandra Bullock, where he oh. and Michael Pitt is – maybe it's called, like, The Perfect Murder or something. Uh, they're, they're these kids who are going to pull off a murder, and Sandra Bullock is the plucky detective who ferrets them out. 
Um, what's another Ryan Gosling action movie? Blue Valentine. There's some action in that. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't know. Have, I haven't seen the the trailer, but I got the sense there was a there were these three girls who came to see it, um, sitting next to me. And uh, and they were gabbing about the movie beforehand, and one of them said, uh, you know, I really love Ryan Gosling and What's-Her-Name, uh, but I don't know what it's about. And another one said, I know, they've been really vague about the whole thing in the, in the, in the trailer. So I don't know if the trailer gives that much away, because when he shows up right after that opening sequence, and there's that uh, high-angle shot of him in a cop uniform, they started laughing. Oh, I love that. I, I love the, just the playfulness of that shot. Because uh, I really did. I was thinking, oh, he's a cop. That makes perfect yeah. sense. And then, no, he's not a cop. He's, he's part of the Hollywood machinery, which I love, too, how self-aware the movie was about that, where when we reveal that Al- Alfred, Alfred, uh, Albert Brooks was a movie producer, you know, he's basically Michael Mann. You know, right. I love how self-aware that was. You know, he, but he also stabs people. Like, movie producers know how to stab wrists perfectly. Well, he's... I think there's a counterpart to... Albert Brooks's character in Nicholas Winding Refn's uh, Pusher movies. Uh, the Pusher movies, it's a trilogy of sort of crime dramas set in Denmark, uh, and each of the movies follows a different character, but they have characters in common. Uh, and one of the characters who's present in all three of the movies and is the lead in the third movie is a, I think he's a, a Serbian named Milo, and he's kind of the equivalent. Uh, he's this avuncular but brutal crime boss. Um, and, I, you know, he, Albert Brooks's character reminded me a lot of this character that Winding Refn created for, for the Pusher movies. Uh, so there is this sense, like, that he is this harmless, avuncular guy, but he can be as brutal as he needs to be. And I, I, one of the things I really liked about the movie is how well Albert Brooks sold that. You know, if you were to tell me we're going to have a movie and the brutal crime boss who's going to bloodily kill a couple of people, including one guy with a fork, <laughs> was so, that was just so over the top. Albert Brooks is going to be that guy. If you told me that, I would have been like, um, is that really going to work? Maybe you want to rethink that. But I, I loved how they sold that. Did, did that. His face looks. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I totally liked him. In this. I wanted to see him stab more people with forks, actually. What, what, so what about his face? What were you going to say? You're well, gonna... just I don't remember the last time I've seen Albert Brooks, but this is the first movie I went, ah, he's, he's had some work done or something. His skin seems extra tight. He, he does have this sort of puffy look of an aged and Hollywood character. character. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great part to play when you have that look. Dingus, how did uh, Albert Brooks work for you? Uh, I really loved him. Um, I, I'm not really sure how to take Ron Perlman because I always feel like he's going to chew somebody's head off, like start eating chickens or something. He's just got this weird jaw. But I, I just loved Albert Brooks. I loved the way the two of them uh, – the, that that scene where he stabs the guy with the fork and then, and, then gets a ni- and then gets a knife and finishes him off. There's that great moment where they're doing a little bargaining, you know, where yeah. it's like, I'm going to need uh, Shannon and the kid or the driver, whatever they're calling him at that point. And uh, Albert Brooks looks at Cook and looks at him and he looks at him and then he stabs him. I mean, Albert Brooks is great. And he's you get the sense of he's really honestly excited about the race car. He really was excited about that. And he's disappointed that it doesn't work out. And they even try to give Al, or, uh, Ron Perlman a little bit of that touch where he talks about resenting the fact that he, he's Jewish. What is it that he's Jewish and he has the like, like they they don't just make him a big, funny looking heavy, even though he is that like he does get a little moment where he's he's somewhat humanized. Uh, and I appreciate that they did that with Ron Perlman a little bit, but with Albert Brooks a whole lot more. 
Uh, and you know what it also makes? Like, I love movies where the showdown is a conversation, you know? And I, I loved that sit down at the table and then let's go out to the parking lot. We're going to stab each knife other. Fight, yeah. yeah. Uh, they were both ready for it. Yeah. And oh, not even a knife fight. Not even a knife fight. Like, it didn't become this silly fight scene. It's just stab, stab. They just traded stabbings, and one of them apparently, I guess, is younger and healthier and is able to walk away from it. Uh, That's the first time someone gets the drop on him, too. Like, Albert Brooks was the best foe he faced in the movie. (laughs) That was a match. And I sounded a little snarky a few minutes ago, but I meant to say that Albert Brooks was playing a film producer. I took it as he was a gangster who became a film producer, and then, like... Brian Cranston had times had been had become lean, and so he was now, you know, his hands were dirty, as he said. So he's got. Oh, just like like he'd been in the, he'd been a gangster all along, but he happened to be in L.A., and so that partly involved producing films. Yeah, and he looks like Albert Brooks, so he worked like that helped him work as a producer. Like that's the real Albert Brooks could right. Uh, so Kelly Wand, having never seen a Ryan Gosling movie, uh, what did you think of him? He's Lars and not the doll in the other one, right? <laughs> uh, yes, he is not the doll. <laughs> but he acts kind of... In- the thing I really liked about his performance in this is... Uh, it in, in Animal Kingdom, you had kind of a similar closed-off guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you had to get the sense that he was capable of both great love and great hate and like able like patience. I can wait for the whole thing to be over. And he's going to come to the room. Then I can shoot him. Like that, like the payoffs, the final scene, and in this, the payoff for me was just getting to see it early on. This seems kind of silly for me to like, but the fact that he fell so easily in with Carrie Mulligan's character kind of makes you like him more. Like you're rooting for him instantly because he, like, he's not even awkward about it. He's just instantly carrying the kid to bed and smiling when he's around her. Mm-hmm. Like it's all pleasant, and it's not like, oh, I have to remember how to love again. It's like, it's not that hard. If it's that easy, if it's obviously her wanting, it's the fates meaning her to live next to you. They want you to have her. <laughs> Carrie Mulligan, who hasn't moved in next to me yet, even though all the other signs are all right. <laughs> Kelly, did you did you by any chance ever see the Hollerizing? No, is that the one with Tom Cruise's eye patch? No, never mind. Uh, something is you just about- said. It's another Nicholas Winding Refn movie, but. Uh, what you were just talking about, uh, this character's capacity for love and stuff like that, made me think of something the character says about Howler Rising. Should I we're, see it? Is it good? Oh, yeah, of course. I talked about it last week. Yeah. No, no, you should definitely see it. Uh, and he's like manga. Uh, both, both. Uh, but Valhalla Rising, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Dingus, because there's the same kind of thing. There's this uh, a, a sort of a, a brutal hero who also has this childlike quality that lets him sort of talk to and sympathize with and and have a child sidekick. And it doesn't necessarily feel contrived. Like, I think of the child sidekick in Valhalla Rising. Uh, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Mads Mikkelsen in that, is a, he's like a force of nature, but it makes perfect sense. So, yeah, of course he's going to hang out with this kid. He's got nothing against <laughs> kids, and he's got this childlike quality to him in a way. And it's the same with Ryan Gosling, like, smiling at that little kid. Uh, I loved their relationship. I loved this uh, staring game they would have. And um, 
you know, that thing where, you know, you blinked, what? Uh, you know, the, the, the kid comes around with the mask and, and he says, oh, scary, and then gives him a toothpick. And then they have this whole thing going on in the background of the garage while Brian Cranston says, this is how I met the kid, you know, and he, he's talking to Kerry Mulligan. And the two of them are in the back just having this little relationship develop. And it feels natural. It doesn't feel like a strained relationship. It just feels I, I loved their relationship. Well, and it is very much uh, a sort of cowboy template. You know, he's the white-hatted cowboy who's kind to women, who understands children, who's going to do the right thing. There, there's never any sort of doubt about, will I intercede? Will I help these people? You know, there is some natural reluctance to give you a little dramatic tension, but he is not at all a gray character, I feel. Um, it, this is very much like a, a sort of a, the template you would use in a Western. Yeah, moral certainty. Yeah. Uh, I also really like, and it kind of ties in, vaguely, mm-hmm. it, was, it just ties in. I really liked the line where he's sitting with the kid, and he goes, wait, a shark can never be a good guy? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line for the movie, the character, and in general, because that's the kind of thing, that's kind of how I talk to kids. I'm kind of curious about their viewpoints. Well, like, really? All sharks are evil to you? And what else? Go ahead, Go ahead well, I was going to say, also in that scene, I liked, too, how when, I guess she was a babysitter, the other girl walks in, he doesn't stop watching TV. He really yeah. seems to care about what's on the screen. Like, he's yeah. really into what the kids say. watching yeah. cartoons. Yeah, uh, I love that. Uh, he's not pretending. They're friends. Uh, so then, did did were you sold on? Because here's part of what I wonder watching a movie like Drive, and when I watch old movies that have like Steve McQueen in them, uh, if you have never seen Ryan Gosling before, were you sold on his sort of badassness? Because I just know sometimes I'll watch like an old movie that has like Steve McQueen in it, and and appreciating his character in the movie is partly predicated on appreciating Steve McQueen as an action hero, and I don't have any of that, so I watch it and I'm like. I don't, you know, Steve McQueen does not seem badass to me. I'm not buying this. Uh, <laughs> did you buy Ryan Gosling's badassness, having never seen him in a movie before? Uh, wait, did you buy Steve McQueen's badassness when he crashed in the barbed wire in Great Escape? That that wasn't no, badass. I doing that. No, I know. It's really <laughs> he fails to escape. Yeah, I did, because a lot of it's in his eyes, um, I thought. He has a really expressive face. It was. He had a lot to do with very little emotion, visible emotion. I mean, I, and I think he's a, a fantastic actor, and that's it's a large part of what made the movie work for me. Uh, Dingus, did you uh, did you appreciate your Ryan Gosling here? I absolutely loved him. I don't think of it as badassness because I think of him as the as a guy who who is used to slipping under the radar. And then he turns it on when he needs to, like when that guy approaches him at the diner and he says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to shut up or I'm going to kick your teeth, your teeth down your throat and I'm going to make you shut up, you know, and and then, you know, when he's in the motel room, he just takes care of all that business and he moves on. Otherwise, Brian Cranston's like, yeah, I've been exploiting this guy and I'll keep doing it. And he kind of lets that happen. Uh, He's the guy who lives down the hall and and I trust him with my kid he'll kiss me in the elevator and then he'll kick a guy's face in. I mean, I thought he was perfect. I he was absolutely perfect. But I, I, he's menacing the girl on the bed too, with his hand, his like Darth Vader glove hand. Yeah. Like whether or not he's pointing or curling the, the finger into a fist. <laughs> it's like he's that's, planning an eye gouge, right? But it's like, but don't, by the way, those ready. gloves, those gloves sound freaking great. 
I love with the, the gloves and the ticking of the watch. Just the waiting, the, those five-minute periods where he's waiting in a car were just fantastic. Yeah, and, and the sound of those gloves absolutely was part of that. Uh, and and the, the, like, hammer scene. I love the sort of the, the humor of going in with the hammer and having these sort of bored, topless women sitting around in the background while he's taking a hammer and a bullet to a thug. Uh, yeah. That that was like that, that was like straight up black comedy stuff. Like that's something the Cohen brothers might do. Uh, I loved that. They would have made it funnier. With I don't think it, it didn't need to be funnier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, no, it, no. it was already as funny as it needed to be. There's a great scene too where he's looking in the restaurant at Ron Perlman and his crew, and Ron Perlman is telling some joke that he thinks is the funniest thing, and he's telling it to this rather disgusted looking woman. <laughs> like, I love I loved that touch. Uh, and, and he's those, wearing a suit, like for some reason at this pizzeria. Yeah. Uh, it is uh, like Michael Mann in that it's it's mm-hmm. kind of. You just have to buy into the, either buy into the style or you're not gonna you're gonna hate the whole movie. Well, I think I, the Michael Mannishness of it I think had a lot to do with the way music was used. You know, there's a lot of slow motion, a lot of pop music too. This and a, and a lot of sort of it, it almost at times had this Tangerine Dream soundtrack, which is one of the hallmarks of, of Thief. Uh, and and then it would it would go into these sort of music video moments that would reflect the character's state of mind at times. Uh, that I thought was very Michael Manny. Um, uh, let me too. Can I ask you guys something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, go ahead. Your first, you Kelly one. What did scene where she's what? Uh, I forget. I was just gonna repeat stuff. Go on. I was gonna ask if you guys had any hope uh, that the uh, that Ryan Gosling's character was gonna make it, that he was going to succeed, or was gonna make it out alive. But he did. I know, but but as you're watching the film, did you get the sense while you're watching it? Did you get a feeling like everything's gonna work out just fine? <laughs> no. Yeah, because I bad. think he 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 kind of sells it like he's not going, like he's going someplace that he can't come back from. Like I, I think we kind of he were. Says that. Yeah, we were kind of given the happy ending as a as a little bit of a fake out gift at the end, uh, and I was not expecting that. I, I really thought that uh, it would just sort of the credits would roll while he was laying there motionless, like before he blinks. Like that was a big fake out that that I did not expect to happen. Is that what you mean, Dingus? Yeah, but uh, I mean a little bit earlier on, because as you watch a movie and you're, like, hanging out with the hero, because everything we see in this movie is when he's around, um, you start to think, you you start to either root root for him, or even if you're not rooting for him, uh, hope or not hope that he's going to make it out alive, or that he's going to succeed, or that he's going to make it off with the money and the girl and the kid. And, And there was a moment in this film where I realized I don't have any, any, um, expectation that he's going to make it. He's going to do the right thing, and things are going to happen like they're going to happen. But I don't have any hope for him in that way that everything's going to turn out great. Right. And that was sort of a wonderfully liberating feeling that that I felt like um, this filmmaker's going to do the right thing by this character. He's not going to bend the film the wrong way. Right. Yep. I definitely agree. And did you feel, so were you okay then with getting a happy ending? Um, I don't necessarily see it as a as a happy ending it's yeah, sort I don't of either i don't know that the girl got out alive necessarily he left the money i don't i don't I know how that's anything. all supposed to shake out you know i i mean i i i think that you know based that the he's killed the guy behind his hideout and left the money there uh the idea is that maybe things will shake out fine but i, I don't know how that's supposed to happen and that whole ending that whole killing sequence that uh 
when they're in the parking lot, which I love the way it was shot. I love this sort of thing of their shadows, and you see his riding gloves out of his the shadow of his riding gloves out of his back pocket. But there's this weird sort of intercutting where where he's stabbed, and it goes back to the restaurant, and he stabs Albert Brooks back to the restaurant. That I didn't know what to make of the character's mental state, so I don't know what to make of that ending. It's just there's there's no sense of he delivers the money to the girl, and then everybody rides off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. But but my 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 question is that more like your sense early in the film that this guy's going to make it out just fine, and I didn't get that sense. I I didn't get a feeling like as if I were watching a a normal action film that that this character's in good hands. He's the he's the hero. He's going to make it out fine. Uh, As Albert Brooks would say of the movies he had made, it was very European in that regard. (laughs) (laughs) Very very nice. Very nice. Uh, Dingus, you and I are, are uh, have been in the past huge Oscar Isaacs fans. He, of course, shows up to play the boyfriend who gets out of prison. Uh, how did you feel about the uh, use of Oscar Isaacs and his performance? I loved him uh, mainly because uh, he did a couple things that um, were were broken expectations for me. In other words, like when he goes out during the party and and. Um, and uh, Irene and the driver are having their scene in the hallway. He has that sense of, oh, this is the guy you've been spending time with, but there's none of that macho, well, I'm going I'm to threaten him and beat him down. It's, he, he takes Benicio and he says, let's let mommy have uh, talk to her, her friends. I mean, there's, there's definite tension there, but, there, but the relationship goes in a different way, and I really like that. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I also, like, I, I thought... I thought we were just going to get the traditional. He's going to have a tiff. Uh, he's going to be the heavy. Um, and I, I liked how they twisted that around and how, again, it, it falls into this idea of Ryan Gosling's character as the white-hatted cowboy who's going to do the right thing. You know, he's not going to get into this macho posing and he, he you know, he's going to sort of sit quietly by and let whatever is going to happen with uh, Carrie Mulligan's life work out. Uh, and Oscar Isaacs, uh, you know, I love using him as a sympathetic character. I think he's entirely wasted playing and you know playing the villain in crap like Sucker Punch and Robin Hood. Uh, there's something fundamentally likable about Oscar Oscar Isaacs oh, and that's I thought it was used, Yeah, yeah, and I thought it was used to great effect in, in this. Uh, that's exactly right. And with that with the way he looked and his facial hair and the blood coming down his face, he looks like he he could like force kind of a tough guy thing, but He's still so vulnerable, and they let that come through, and it was perfect for this. Dingus, how would you feel about them casting Michael Pena in that part? I think it would be hilarious. <laughs> I think they should try that. That would be my favorite part of it. He could do it like with a lisp, like he had in 30 Minutes or Less. Wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> I think this movie needed a lot more funny. That's <laughs> Did uh, you like the little kids? That's what she said. Uh, very good, Kelly Wan. Kelly Wan, do you want a toothpick? That's what she said. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I like the little kid. I don't remember a lot. Of, I mean, yeah, he's just a cute little precocious kid. Yeah, after the bullet scene, the director goes, all right, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> you're fine. We'll assume everything's fine with you. Were you okay with the little kid, Dingus? Any observations uh, about how he did as a kid actor? I liked him. I liked... Uh, one thing I liked in particular was after that, where, where he watches his father take a beat down, they let him just be scared for a while. For the next couple of scenes, that kid is in shock and scared. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while to bring him out of it. And I really like that. I mean, 
often you've got this facile, hey, let me show you a toy in, in distraction. <laughs> the kid just shrugs it off, yeah. But and he's uh, not but, crying, he's thinking. You can see he's thinking about it. Well, he's yeah. in shock. I mean, he's right, clearly right, right. in shock, and I love that. I mean, Ryan Gosling takes them, I, I presume, into his apartment to help um, uh, Standard clean up, and and the kid's sitting there and just still clearly afraid and in shock and just sort of blank. And I, I you know, the kid had very little to say, and I I loved. I loved that, and I liked that he disappeared, and that we didn't have this sort of "I'm going to have this kid hanging over the film in danger" kind of thing going on. Right, right. See, it spared us a lot of stupid shit we were hoping wouldn't happen, and none of that happened. Hey, here's a kid that didn't ruin the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, a sex scene with Carrie Mulligan and Michelle Williams together. Wow, Kelly Wand. I don't know. Uh, yeah, she did. So she did look very Michelle Williamsy. I did find that distracting. Uh, I, I, Is that on purpose? Is that like where they uh, gave the um, the kid who was in Jerry Maguire like Harry Potter glasses when he's in like the movie with monsters or something? What? I don't know what you. I don't know what you're referencing. But yeah, maybe like it was. They on. made her look like Michelle Williams to cash in on Blue Valentine. Could be. Could be, because there's a lot of crossover in terms of the appeal. Or not. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Catch the same audience. Well, actually, so here's what I thought. I, I thought she looked a lot like Katie Holmes. Am I out of line there? Uh, you're yeah. so fucking weird. When it comes to <laughs> <laughs> Cartwright and Birch Double there. All right. I mean, Katie, Katie Holmes isn't blonde, short-haired. What, what is she? Like, maybe uh, Pieces of April. Uh, no, I don't know. I just got a Katie Holmes vibe. Maybe it's just because we had just seen uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. I don't know. Yeah, like nine weeks ago. <laughs> well, you know, that movie left an impression on me. But her hair looked nothing like, I mean... You do have a point there. You do have a point there. It's hair-based. I don't, I, I don't see hairstyles, Kelly Wand. Do you find teeth attractive? Is it like a thing with you? Because I think I have a tooth fetish. Like uh, the... Like the demons, like who haunted Katie Holmes. <laughs> Spoiler. Uh, Kelly Wan, so you have not seen any other Nicholas Winding Refn movies or Ryan Gosling movies. Is that correct? Yeah, so I can go out a winner. Uh, I think you still got... What am I missing? You got he made the Punisher sound good. Yeah, except it's not that. It's Pusher. It's the it's Pusher, Pusher 2, Pusher 3. Those are great. Uh I think uh, I'm. This is my uh, my little contrarian bit. I think they're better than the Godfather movies. Dingus, uh, what do you got to say about that? You don't even like that. You haven't seen the Godfather movies. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> I totally have. How dare you? When? When did you watch them? Uh, I, I, I seen them. no. I finally caught up on them. Like within the last couple of years, I've seen them and they're fine. You know, they're you watched all three of them. You watched part. Three well, I watched. The, I watched the first two. Like you don't have to watch the third one, do you? Isn't that? Aren't, oh. Isn't everybody excused yes. from the third one? What? There's a helicopter scene. Fucking. <laughs> well, if there's a helicopter scene in it, I'll be sure to check it out. Uh, so, uh, but Kelly Wand, you should see Valhalla Rising. I think you would totally appreciate that. Um, Is it about you, Vikings? I'm not going to say, but maybe. Uh, you should also see a really weird psychological thriller called Fear X. I think you would appreciate that as well. Uh, and as far as Ryan Gosling movies, you should see Crazy Stupid Love. Uh. No, that's the Lindsay Lohan one. 
No, what are you talking about? It's the one with uh, that you refused for us to see. Yeah, with Steve Carell. Because the previews, I didn't want to see either of those story arcs. I didn't want to see Steve Carell pining for Julianne Moore for fucking an hour and a half. And you don't want to see Ryan Gosling. Don't you want to see Ryan Gosling wooing Emma Stone? How long would that take in real life? <laughs> no, I don't want to see that. I'm assuming it would be awesome if you were them, but I don't want to watch unless it's the actual fucking. And even then, I want the angle would be very important. <laughs> Kelly, one, who would you want to see Ryan Gosling wooing? Wait, is she related to the Julianne Moore character? Because they're both like. You know what? I actually have not seen Crazy Stupid Love. I uh, walked out of the first part of it and instead saw the change up, and I feel like I came out ahead. Oh, you didn't like uh, what's the? What did those guys write? Crazy Stupid Love, Bad Santa. Yeah, oh, you don't like Bad Santa. Remember you know what you though? Telling me that you don't say that anymore, do you? <laughs> I don't hear any more of that. But what I do say is the change-up guys are the ones who wrote the original Hangover. So there. What do you think of that? Uh, they got lucky. Twice. Right. Could happen five. Like, George Lucas got lucky. All right. Uh, all right. Well, uh, so you've got your Nicholas Winding Refn work to catch up on. Uh, the Hala Rising. The Hala Rising and, and Fear X and all three Pusher movies. They're also equally good. Well, they're they're so, they're hand. I mean, they're they're serious. You can't just watch one of them. They all have so much to do with each other and the way it progresses. You can't just watch one pusher movie. Sorry. Oh, like the Bourne movies. You know what? Kind of, but uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't the Bourne movies seem like American remakes of something? Doesn't it look like it should be a French movie? Mm. Like it would have lamer car crashes, but more sex. I'm going to... S- oh, like, that's what it would be originally like. The French movie has yeah, way car crashes, French sex. Lie. American remake, better car crashes, less sex. Yeah. Because our spies wouldn't... They wouldn't be that. You know what? I don't know. I don't want you touching the Bourne movies. The third one, you can do whatever you want with. You can have that one, and you can say that looks like an American remake of something. But no, I, I, I think the first two are, are pretty close to perfect. I'm, I'm afraid I can't go with you there. I forgot what I said. Dingus, get in here. Are you going to back me up on that? Yeah. On them being close to perfect? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, sorry, Kelly Wand, you're overruled. I'm glad, by the way, summer's over and stuff like Drive's coming out, so I don't have to just dread every fucking week, like another comic book movie. I hate summer movies. Well, Drive is so exciting to me because because of what you just said. I don't think it could have come out as this. I think it was originally slated to be this huge $60 million summer movie. And I just love that, uh, yeah, and I think um, Hugh Jackman was going to be in it or something. I forget. Oh, you were totally lying, Dingus. Is that true? No, yeah, yeah. But then but then uh, um, it went into a different direction, and Brian Gosling got to choose who was going to direct this movie. Oh, that is awesome. And um, he had seen Valhalla Rising and just loved it, and and he just thought this is this is the kind this is the kind of person I want to direct it. And I love that because you hear a lot of this like guy from overseas who makes a couple of cool movies and then comes over here and just gets totally fucked over, like the tourist, like Chuck exactly, Taylor. exactly. Uh, and in, and instead you got and you know I I only got to watch uh, Valhalla Rising for the first time this week. It's on Instant Watch, and what I love about Drive is that it he he retains some of his 
character just being silent and staring off and there's some music playing and it's just these quiet, long, quiet moments. He does that for as long as he can. And he sustains those throughout uh, in much more of a way than you could do in a summer blockbuster. And I love that it came out now and that he was able to do that. Kelly, Wand, have you seen the trailer for Drive? No, I don't watch trailers unless they're about contagions. <laughs> You're so lying. I'm just curious. I, I have not seen it. I, I am, I'm just curious how the trailer makes the movie look. You don't know? It was like the trailer for Drive Angry, but less angry. <laughs> okay. Well, well I was wondering... Uh, you know, if you guys were going to complain about a movie being called Drive without a lot of whole heck of a lot of driving in it. And one of the things I love is that it's called Drive and that word can mean a variety of things. Right. Uh, but I just didn't know if you guys were because one of our complaints about Drive Angry was that there wasn't a hell of a lot of driving angry. In it. That's true. Or anger. And one of the complaints about anger and faster also didn't go faster a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Apollo 18 only went up once. It's a documentary. Uh, so I the the thing about it being it remind there's a Walter Hill movie with Ryan uh, O'Neill called The Driver. So either of you guys yeah. know that movie? Yeah, yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, and it's it, Bruce Bruce Stern's in it too, right? Bruce Stern is the cop who's investigating him. It, it, so this this is kind of like The Driver, but minus the cop angle. So Bruce Stern is the cop chasing him down. Ryan O'Neill's the the driver, uh, and it it is it, Walter Hill, so it had that very kind of budget peck and paw feel to it that Walter Hill brings to his movies. Um, so that's what it put me in mind of with the title. Like I was kind of expecting something like that. And I, I think that's kind of what I got. Yeah, absolutely. I remember liking the driver. And I remember there being a lot of driving in it. Uh, you know, I, I've all I vague, most of what I remember about the actual like action scenes of the driver are the way that it kind of ended in an anticlimactic one. Uh, it, but at least I thought that as a kid when I saw it, and I probably would have felt the same way about Albert Brooks and Ryan Gosling in the parking lot, is the driver ended up with Ryan O'Neill just getting the drop on someone because he shoots him from behind a car door. Uh, and then the movie ends. Um, but that's all, yeah. And that, that's 70, God, I don't know how old that movie is. You know, that's probably like an 80s movie as well, kind of like Thief. Um, no, I think it's The Gambler. Did you ever see that? Late, it's late 70s, like 77, 78. Okay. I'll go with that then. Uh, what year? What year is Thief, Dingus? And then we'll get to the Gambler. Seventy-eight. Thief is the uh, James Con one. You were talking about that earlier, right? It's Michael Mann, James Con. Uh, yeah, Tangerine Dream soundtrack. It's eighty-one. Tuesday Weld. Oh, all right. Yeah, I think Kelly's right. Probably. Okay, good. Um, the thing in Thief, there's a scene where he talks about he's having like a lunch with with Tuesday Weld, talking about having issues in prison. If you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. and then, so it's like the Michael Mann had scenes like that, but in Drive you have nothing like that, like no references to his past at all. Right. Which I'm really coming more and more to really like in movies. I don't want to know anything about the character before the movie started. The less I know, the better the fucking movie is, Mr. Lucas. Seriously. Well, I just like that the movie kept not being the movie that I thought it was going to just relax into. It never relaxed in. It, it didn't 
stay a movie about heists. It didn't stay a movie about stunt driving and weirdness about that. It didn't move into a movie about stock car racing, thank God. It oh, just, yeah, I was a little worried yeah, about that. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought we were going to get several shots of him at a track winning races, because I don't watch trailers, <laughs> so I didn't know where it was going. <laughs> and, and then they're going to win races, and then the mob's going to come in. And it just it never, it never um, got lazy, and I love that about it. Yeah. I don't know, Dingus, this could have been this could have been a movie about a promising stock car yeah. driver whose it could career, have been an Elvis movie. Yeah, his career is derailed by involvement yeah, with shady figures. We could have had that. Shady that's true, figures. and then I would have understood why the hell Christina Hendricks showed up. I had no idea that was her, by the way. I remember seeing her name in the credits and thinking, Oh, I, I understand she's the super hot redhead from Mad Men. I'm looking forward to seeing this. And then okay. the movie was over and I didn't and I was like, well, who when was she? Wait a minute, I thought Christina Hendricks was supposed to be in this. Uh, and yeah, I love how they dumped her, made her look kind of frowzy. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't understand that whole thing where Cook is like, this is how much I'll give you for Blanche, this is how much I'll give you for... And, it, and this is how much I'll give you for you. And it's, fuck off. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it reminded me of the scene. Isn't there a great scene in, in uh, True Romance where, oh, is it, it, it's something with Christian Slater and Gary Oldman, and there's a, a figure written on a piece of paper. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And it's um, just a penis? Yes. No, you guys don't know what I'm... It's how much Christian Slater's coming in. No, so Christian Slater, uh, who's the woman in True Romance? The woman, she's one of the... Patricia Arquette. Right, right. Uh, so Christian Slater is like, I'm in love with you, Patricia Arquette. I'm going to buy you off of your pimp or whatever so he goes in to see gary oldman and he doesn't he have something like okay i've written on this envelope how much i'm going to give you to leave her alone uh, and he yeah, hands yeah, gary yeah. oldman the envelope and it just says something like fuck off am i misremembering that i think there's a dollar sign <laughs> or maybe it's yeah maybe he's gonna offer him a dollar so anyway it's, it's just a big, small point before the f's it's that kind of scene that that cook has uh with ryan gosling that i really like that's what i thought of i don't remember the scene in true romance as well but uh scene I, he's I a cook play. and driver's a driver so it's like ah very good dingus yes i mean uh, what's your name kelly one yes very good oh, <laughs> what's, what's weird about that is that the guy goes he shows him the fuck off and then ryan gosling's like yeah so anyway i'm gonna drive over there <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he's uh, he's unflappable, you know. That's what's great about him. Uh, he should have on his hand, and then they haggle with their hands. Maybe he's actually blind, and we missed that. Oh, Dingus, that's mean. <laughs> uh, he cuts right. off the guy's hand and gives it back to him later. Uh, did he's you think? Here's your hand back. Did you think that weird? I loved it, but I'm wondering if you, what you guys felt thought of that weird sort of '80s Euro pop song. At the end and throughout, I think that was like he's a real being, not uh, he's not. Yeah, a it's hero. like he's, he's a human hero. being. There's, yeah, he's a human being and a real hero. It, was, it seemed a little on the nose for me, but I still loved the way the song sounded because it felt very European and poppy. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, and that's what I, I think. That's part of the whole Michael Mann vibe is that it's this on the nose like pop music video soundtrack. And I, I you know what, I kind of like when I'm watching a movie and I don't know any of the songs. Yeah, that that can work. That that. That can sometimes Mr. not work. Zack Snyder. Uh, yeah, but those are like those are like 
crappy remakes of songs I do know. That's I what I'm hate saying. that. I'm right, right. Yeah, yeah, I hate that. Uh, or, for instance, Zach and Miri make a porno. There's a great Pixie song in there. Like, sometimes I love it when I know a song, but one of the things I liked about Driver, I didn't know any of these songs, so they were kind of new to me. I'm assuming they were maybe somehow near and dear to Nicholas Winding Refn's heart. Uh, so I just appreciated someone showing me a song that he obviously cared enough about to put in the movie at a couple of moments. Uh, so that worked for me, Dingus, even though I was a little taken aback by the poppiness of it. Um, I, totally I saw it as ironic because he's not a pop kind of character, so it's like it's an ironic counterpoint to his blank. Well, it wasn't slate. the poppiness. The poppiness didn't bother me. It was just the the lyric of "He's a, a a real human being. He's a real hero," which just felt a little bit like this is the theme of the movie. Can you can you sing that in the in the tune for us, Dingus? How that went? Yes. We don't need another heat. Oh, God. So 80s. Uh, so 80s. <laughs> post-apocalyptic movies shouldn't have fucking music in them. Mr. George Miller. I'm just uh, going to declare rules randomly. <laughs> it have nothing to do with what anybody's talking about. It'll have absolutely nothing to do with Drive or anything at all. I, I absolutely loved my audience. Tom, you talked about your audience. I, I loved, I absolutely loved the audience I saw it with. Um because they they were totally unprepared for how violent this movie was going to be. Um, th- there was that moment where um, after Christina Hendricks get her, gets her face blown off, and uh, and Ryan Gosling's like hiding near the air conditioner, and this girl next to me goes, "What's he gonna do?" <laughs> oh God! Uh, and, <laughs> and and after he uh, talks to <laughs> Carrie Mulligan and she smacks him, the the same girl goes, "There's a lot of slapping in this movie." Uh, too much slapping. That's her problem. So the to- the the skulls getting kicked in and blown in don't bother, but the slaps. Well, well, I love well afterwards, somebody behind me said he thought he he was watching a um he thought he was watching the Predator, and uh, and then this. <laughs> What? Wait, what does that mean? I don't understand that means. Because because there was so much gore in it, I think. So it's a Predator movie? Because and then, the, and those then, are the only gory movies that exist. That's the well, only the, analogy. The, one of the girls next to me, again, there was a, a bunch of girls watching watching movies together, and I got the sense they, they were seeing three movies this day, and they were going to see Straw Dogs last, because Alexander Tartzagard is in it, they said. And so as they got up to leave... One of them said, that, that's the most violent movie I've seen in a long time. And the other girl said, I know, it was like Kill Bill 4 or whatever. Oh, and then the guy behind me said that about Predator. <laughs> so, the, yeah, the Kill Bill line's dumb enough, and then they went dumber. Kelly Wand, how was your audience? Uh, they said, uh, that's the most violent movie I've seen since Cats and Dogs 2, Pussy the Lord. Oh wow, that's that's harsh. It was pretty harsh. Uh, mine mine laughed at Brian Gosling having blood all over his face in the in the bathroom. I think it was like a nervous laughter thing, like uh, where they weren't expecting. It's sort of like people had. Well, it's like they forgot it was R rated. Like I, it, this movie was so oh, yeah. rated. Uh, red flex on skin. That, that, I, my kid, you can only be seventeen to see the red flex. Oh come on, Kelly Wan, you cannot take issue with how R rated this was. Come on, really? Yeah, I totally do. They cut away from everything. Booze, softcore. Nope, totally. No way. His, are you his, talking about? Shot of a caved-in face being stomped on. Uh, uh, Brian's uh, wrist barely. opened up. Uh, Come on, the, the, Christina no, no Hendricks' head. Christina Hendricks' no head. I'm resting my case. Christina Hendricks is the left side of her head. What do you think of that? 
in slow mo. I'll grant. Just because we didn't see the guy drowned, and I think that was just stylish. <laughs> that would have been NC seventeen, Dingus. I love the, how his his outfit got increasingly bloodier, and he yes. just didn't bother to change his scorpion jacket. And also, I love that we never have explained for us why he's got a scorpion on his jacket. No, because he's saying, remember the story about the scorpion and the frog. Oh, gosh, you're right. Oh, okay, here's what I love, then, that he didn't tell the actual story. Right. <laughs> I love that, too, because I know the story, and it's awesome. And it's so it, If they had actually it's had totally to spell that out in the movie, if the script had, had to explain to us this, this story that's in already 20 right. other movies. Yeah. <laughs> a shittier movie would have... Dude, that's such a studio note. What's the scorpion and the frog story? <laughs> People in the audience might think they're watching Predator, and if you don't explain... <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> I stepped on you. What's exactly what you thought? <laughs> okay. I was just going to say it's exactly what I thought when you were talking about Straw Dog Story, that some studio noticed, like, come on, tell us what Straw Dogs mean. Wait, uh... All right. I had one last one. No, no. Go ahead. What's your one last comment? I was going to say about, like, you know how, I was going to say, like, it's always weird at what people laugh at in movies to me. Like, it's just something that always fascinates me. It's why I like going to movies. Like, really? But that was funny. And I remember when I saw Hunt for Red October, there's this scene where Harrison Ford, wait, he's not in there. Somebody goes, hey, what's Harrison Ford doing in here? Yeah, why's Harrison Ford in the Sean Connery movie? He's Russian and the other one. But the, like, submarines are, like, pacing each other underwater, and you, like, see them both in the same shot. And I remember that got a huge laugh for some reason when I saw it. I like, Why is that funny? Sub- I know. I mean, it was just, like, right. the way the shot is, like, you, did, you were just so bored you had to laugh at something. Like, so much. Kelly One, what's the best Darren Aronofsky submarine movie? Fountain? Mm, sorry. That would be Below. Oh. Oh, Valhalla Below. <laughs> <laughs> Rise of the Blows. The Lords. Uh, let's do a three by three. Yeah. Yeah? Terrible. Terrible. No? Well, I don't know. What do you think of this three, I did, three Kelly? I one? said all those dirty lines, and you didn't do it. And then I said something boring, and then you played Britney Spears. I know. We had technical difficulties. Uh, uh, but did I think you so. prematurely Britney, or did you post-maturely Britney? A little of both. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> The problem is I kept wanting to talk about things like music, and then Tom would have to hold off. But we made it. We made it through our Drive podcast. Now, let's do a 3 by 3 I think we're all fans of it. Um, we think you should see it. If you're just now tuning in for the 3 by 3 we all heartily endorse Drive, I think. Yeah. Uh, let's do a 3 by 3 of the most convincing scientists you have seen in movies. Mm. Uh Yes. Sounds Most- exciting to debate that. Oh, yeah, I don't think he was convincing. Totally what? misused the word chlorines. <laughs> I don't. I don't have any. Yeah, I don't know of any possible way you could have a Star Wars reference in here. But I'm sure because yeah, there are no scientists in the Star Wars universe. Because there's no science. Right. No science. It's science fiction. You see. Thanks, George Lucas. Appreciate that. So Kelly Wand, you are introducing next week's three by three. So you get to go first. What really? is Yep, that's the way it works. Uh, what is the most? Con- what is the third most convincing scientist you have ever seen in a motion picture? Seems like I'm going first twice, which seems unfair. Like I'm going first with my number three, which is also confusing. It should be one, two, three, right? And then because the third one, and then well, this is like a countdown. This is like uh, oh, right, right, yeah. See, like something's like something's going to launch at the end of it. Not exactly. Okay. This isn't the launch part here. This is like three second to second launch. 
was working our way up to the launch, right? My third most convincing movie scientist. Uh, this is the one I had the least trouble thinking of. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be an if there's some if you say certain people, I'm going to say no, he's not convincing because of this. But I think we can all agree on this one. Uh, of course, the human centipede, Dieter Laser scientist. He doesn't like human beings. Lives alone in a mansion. That's my mm-hmm. number three. Dr. Dieter Laser. Did he have a name? Was that his name? <laughs> he swam nude in front of the human centipede. Uh, I always, I, I thought of uh, that's sort of a quintessential mad scientist. I don't find those convincing, convincing. personally. You don't, you don't find a guy with a German accent making human centipedes convincing. Like I don't find name a more convincing type of human centipede inventor than that guy. <laughs> Uh, I can name more convincing scientists. I can't name more convincing mad, Richards would more make convincing mad scientists in horror movies, though. Uh, I'm, I will put Dieter Laser up there with Doc Brown in Back to the Future. What do you think of that? He's convincing, too. He's not <laughs> it for, for, yeah, it's like a mad scientist. Is that kind of role. That guy is good, though. I do like Dieter Laser. Uh, but a lot of cool scientists I do. I had to get rid of because it went, no, not convincing. Like some of my favorite movie characters. Well, it depends on... This is, well, this is partly, I guess, what the three by three means to each of us individually. You know, what do you like? What does science mean to you? Like, like movie science is so often just like bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, see, I don't see that as this topic. I see it as who in movies, who's not a scientist, acted the most like a clinical, uh, soulless. Um, <laughs> That's what a scientist did to you. Geez. All right. <laughs> wow. If you're listening and you're a scientist, send all hate mail to Kelly Wand well, at mail.com. There's no scientific proof of the soul, so they would be the first. <laughs> they'd say it proudly. Soulless and proud. Dingus, have you seen Human Centipede? Uh, no, but I feel like I have because I've been <laughs> doing this podcast. <laughs> all right, Dieter Laser, I, I, I agree. He's a great villain. Uh, do you consider him an unconvincing scientist, Tom? I do. I, I think mad scientist is one of the, it's, it's typical Hollywood scientist, is the mad-driven guy who's going to sacrifice well-being in, in pursuit of some nebulous. I mean, what is he even researching? What about Oppenheimer? He's just like Oppenheimer, Dieter Laser. It's the same fucking thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nuclear fusion, it's human centipede. What's it? A nuclear missile looks like a human centipede coincidence. Hello. Good point, Paul. Very good point. All right, so Dieter Laser in Human Centipede, Kelly Wan's third most convincing scientist. Dingus, what do you have to top that? Boy, I don't know. I have a quote. All right, give us a movie quote. Death is a disease. It's like any other, and there's a cure, and I will find it. Cobra. This is on my runners-up, but I, it's so stylized. But, but a good Medicine pick. man. I, I love the pick. I certainly love the movie. Uh, Iron it man, is too. It is stylized, but this was one of my favorite um, performances this year. I did that year. I didn't think Hugh Jackman could do this, um, and uh, I had a hard. T- okay, well, it's it's the it's the Fountain from 2006, and the um, the scientist is uh, Tom Creo. The, he's a neuroscientist, uh, and the difficulty ha- I had in sort of thinking of this, I I kind of wanted to put together scientists who don't go off the reservation in that. You know, they actually practice good science, but in movies, you often have a scientist doing things that are unethical or unscientific, you know. And so what Tom Tommy is doing in this is he's trying to find a cure for something overnight, and his fellow scientists are saying, no, that's not how it's done. Um, and so... And why is he doing this, Dingus? What's his motivation? 
Well, his motivation first is to save his wife's life, and then it's to find a cure for what killed her and find a cure for death, really. Right. Um, And uh, I just was so enamored of Hugh Jackman's uh, performance across the board in that. But in particular of him, I just have this image of him sitting at his desk when his wife wants to have time with him. And all he can do is research. And what he wants to do is research, but he's torn between the time he's spending doing research and the fact that she just wants to walk out on the roof with him and talk to him and show him something. Um, and so this idea of that, of those things weighing against each other really, uh, I mean, there were, I had a number of, of, uh, of runners up, but, but that kind of swayed it. What's his name? Tom Creo. I think. Do they well, say that like, in the movie? They actually call him Creo, Dr. Creo. And like, do they say that's his last name? Well, they talk. They, they call him Tommy, and her name is is Izzy Creo, I think. Well, all their their name too. Well, all their <laughs> shut up, Kelly Wand. Uh, all of their throughout all three timelines, they have different names. You know, he's Tomas yeah. and the Conquistador, and he's Tom. But uh, I didn't know that Creo. They ever said his last because that means I believe, which is now cheesy ah. too on the nose, and I now like the fountain less. <laughs> oh, thank you. Did they really say that in the movie though, or you just is is it just listed that way somewhere online? Uh, well, no, I just went try. I tried to look up the character names to try to figure out what kind of science they were, scientists they were, and I saw that name. So maybe maybe that's his uh, his science fiction name. God, I hope that's not in the movie. <laughs> uh, it's got to be in the movie. If Dingus noticed. Well, that sounds like the kind of thing that was was probably in the script, and at some point, Darren right. Novsky was smart enough to say, uh, "Let's we're not going to mention that this is his last name." Let's because uh, I've seen. Right, we'll, oh, we'll his name is just, let's say it's just Tommy then. Okay, <laughs> I like that better. That uh, means what, Tom, in Latin? Twins. Oh, I know it's kind of boring. I wish, even though there's three of them, it should be triplets. Ah, good point. Right. You They're, know, I I think Dingus is a poor choice because a he's really handsome. And most scientists are kind of schlubby looking. And right. two, um, he doesn't talk much science talk in that movie. Like, not enough for my taste. There's a lot of metaphysics. There's a fair bit. I love them. There, there is a fair bit of like science talk early on, and one of the fake-outs I love, and you only get this the first time you see the fountain, is you don't realize that they're experimenting on a monkey's. You know, he's talking about patients and about, I think it's like brain surgery or whatever. And, and then the reveal is they're doing experimental stuff and they're not actually treating people. Uh, that's like a cool reveal. Another cool thing about the science in the fountain, Dingus, you would know this woman's name. Uh, who's the mother entangled? Mandy Moore. Rachel no. Rachel Cook. No. Dingus, uh, who's, the, do you, who's the evil stepmother entangled, Dingus? Heather Graham. <laughs> Kristen Scott Thomas, Woody Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Gray, Pamela Hensley. Her name is Donna Murphy. Donna Murphy, thank you. I love the fact that she's one of the scientists in the fountain. This Broadway singer chick. Uh, yeah, so that did a little trivia uh, there. Uh, you know what else too in in, yeah. in movies? The scientist. I don't like how in movies now. The scientist is never doing something just because he is interested in the answers, like for science. It's always got to be because his wife's dying. Well, that's what like this three, three is for, Kelly Wand. Yeah. See, that's kind of thing. Again, thing is a great pick, but again, I sort of feel like that whole cliched trying to do it for your dying wife uh, thing. Like, the old dying wife chestnut. <laughs> but you're right, Kelly Wand. Like, that's something that. Albert you know, Brooks again. The, very good. The pursuit of just like pure science, of pure knowledge. Uh, like I in ju- the original. Oh, go on. Well, like, say, 
take it away. <laughs> I, I'll only do mine so I, before I forget because I'm a fool, and then you'll remember yours because you're smart. Uh, the time machine, the original one, like he just makes a time machine. Like why the fuck not? But in oh the god, you one, told us like, about this in the remake of the time machine. In the remake, yeah, I got to save my wife. <laughs> and he has to learn that his, his time machine's a piece of shit, and he just, uh, it's just a machine at the end. Here goes my number one pick, rats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Guy <laughs> Pierce. Also, Guy Pierce's sinus to memento. Also, Guy Pierce. Uh, yeah. All right, so but but although again to Dingus's pick, to props for Dingus's pick, all three storylines in the Fountain are about this quest for knowledge, and that though does kind of go to the heart of science, whether it's for a country, for spiritual enlightenment, or for a dying wife. Like like the Fountain is all about this sort of quest into figuring out stuff, I guess, sure. which is very scientific, uh, and that that's ultimately I think what the Fountain is is about. Um, so, That's all right, good, dude. Uh, let me give you guys my number three pick. Here is a scientist who is kind of schlubby. He's not super handsome. He's very much out of his element throughout the movie. He is uh, he's a little blinded by science. In fact, he is so focused on his science that he doesn't understand what's going on around him in on the human realm. And he ends up being a kind of a dupe. Uh, it's a movie from a, I think he's Dutch, a Dutch director named Philip Haas, who makes movies about weird human aberrations. Uh, his first movie was called The Music of Chance, which is a little scene, weird little movie I, I heartily recommend. But his second movie was called Angels and Insects. And in it, an actor named Mark Rylance plays a naturalist who has come back from the Amazon, where he's been studying bugs. And he lost everything in a shipwreck. He lost most of his specimens. Uh, he was working for a patron, this uh, Victorian English family. Uh, it's a period piece. And so he's come back, having failed this mission after being in the Amazon rainforest studying bugs for so long, and he takes up with this, this family. Uh, and he's kind of blind to this weird something that's going on with the family, and there's a mystery that unfolds over the course of the movie. Uh, but he's so into bugs. Like, he uses science to woo the super hot chick at one point. Uh, he uses science to uh, get out of a fight with the hot-headed young noble who he has a disagreement with. Um, and I, I love his I love the portrayal of Mark Rylance's character as a scientist and how that determines how he sees the world and things he also doesn't see in the world. Uh, Angels and Insects is kind of like a it's like Merchant Ivory meets David Lynch is, is how Ooh. I would describe it. Uh, Succulent. And it's also has anyone here seen Angels and Insects? I think it's a fairly obscure movie. No. Nope. All right. Uh, so it's also uh, Kirsten Scott Thomas before Hollywood realized that she is really hot. Uh, she she plays uh, she plays a, a real uh, sort of buttoned up. Uh, she's like the librarian type chick. She's like the super nerdy Victorian English chick uh, who she sort of hooks up with Mark Rylance over the course of the movie. Um, but she's great in that. It was only after this movie that she was in uh, English Patient, and she had to persuade them that she could be like hot and sexual and all the stuff that we now know her for. This was this was pre that Kirsten Scott Thomas. Um, so Angels and Insects, uh, my favorite scientist, played by Mark Relance, my third place Rylance, my third place favorite scientist. Have you guys seen a movie called Blood Oranges or Up at the Villa? 
way too obscure. All right. Uh, Blood Oranges is the movie he did after Angels and Insects, and it is, no joke, it is about, it is a cautionary tale about if you only have one arm, you should probably find a hobby other than autoerotic asphyxiation. Ooh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a true thing. Uh, Mr. 127 Hours. <laughs> uh, Dingus, you know, uh, Mark Rylance in Angels and Insects is a little bit like Edward Norton in The Painted Veil. And he's also a scientist in that as well. You know what? I probably I shouldn't. I hope I'm not stealing anybody's pick. Um, <laughs> what? Painted Veil? Dude, all mine are from Phantasm. <laughs> well, Kelly, what is your number two? Wait, I had something smart to say about yours. You would like uh, Angels and Insects, Kelly Wand, by the way. I thought that was the Dan Brown thing. Oh, God. Uh, it's based on an A.S. Byatt novel, actually. If that oh, means. right. Uh, is it Dutch? He is, is a Dutch director. Dutch? Philip, uh, no, it's not Pennsylvania Dutch. Not at all. It's not Deutsch. No. It's like Goldmember Dutch. It's Amsterdam Dutch. Swiss Miss, Finger in the Dyke. My <laughs> uh. number two is another mad scientist. Because I right. thought that's what we were doing. I thought, see, because to me that's convincing. No, scientists that, are no, insane, soulless schlubs. That's my point. Fair enough. If that's your perception of science, that's that's a fair point. Okay. Yeah. I'm an atheist, and that's what I believe. That's what the future, that's my hope for the future, is soulless testicle-shaped schlubs. Remember the guy who uh, got in trouble on Valentine's Day? Like, he had to resign because he said um, sperm makes women less depressed. Remember that guy? Uh, I do not remember him. Let's make that movie. <laughs> you don't know who I'm talking about? Nah. All right, my number two is uh, the guy from Reanimator. Herbert Jeffrey Lewis. Combs? Yeah, Jeffrey Combs. Because he looks like a scientist. <laughs> okay. It's kind of an intelligent design way of picking a scientist. <laughs> uh, but also, uh, he's doing science for the whole movie. Like, he's completely... The more fucked up things get, he's he's all, oh, cool. Okay, if we, well, let's try it out on the head. Let's try it on the cat. Let's try it out on the head after we kill the head, and then we kill the head and try it out on the head again. Like, he's never not interested in, like, okay, wait, one last experiment. It's like the whole movie, and then the whole trilogy, including the prison one. Tom and I watch together. Uh, definitely an over-the-top mad scientist. Yeah, that's uh, and that put Jeffrey Coombs on the map. I am at him and Stuart Gordon. I don't got... see him as mad. I mean, if he's invented a thing that brings it makes zombies, that's not insane. He's just perturbed. And, right. and all that stuff is mountain is Mountain Dew, by the way. I can't help but look at that glowing green stuff and think that's. I think I that's Mountain Dew. It's backlit Mountain Dew. But if Thomas Edison, when he electrocuted that elephant to mock Tesla or whatever, like if the elephant had come back as a zombie, we'd all be calling him the Wizard of Menlo Park. Kelly Wand, I want you to work that up in a script. I want you to be my little Marine, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Wand, get that out of my face. Oh, I don't. Please don't make me see that movie when it comes out. Why isn't Rachel McAdams in it? Who's this new chick? I don't want to see another. She's new me Ray Peach. Whatever. Oh, what's she from? That's a racist. From the girl with the dragon tattoo. What? That's not even out yet, and I have to. From the original one. Not the American remake. Wait, is she? Wait, no. Wait a minute. I am screwing it up, aren't I? She is in the remake. Wait, just say her name again. Naomi Ray Peach. Oh, that's not how you said it first. I don't. What is she from? 
what am I thinking of? Is the American remake just going to be like the Matt Reeves version, like the David Fincher version of what the right one is? I don't know. I'm sick of these fucking remakes. Okay, never mind. Herbert West, number two. Sorry. All right. All right, so no one's going to help me with Naomi Repici. Uh, Dingus, what is your number two choice for most convincing scientist, mad or otherwise? All right, my uh, number two, uh, like my number one, is neither mad nor is this scientist uh, testicle-shaped, I think is how Kelly put it. Um, I went with the reality that most of these scientists that are in Hollywood movies have to be played by Those good-looking people. Those are just people. physicists. Not so I did not hold their looks against them as far as convincing this was concerned. Mm-hmm. The scientist is pretty good-looking. Uh, and here's a quote from this scientist. Mm-hmm. Mathematics. It's the only true universal language. Ah, Paul Walker in Eight Below. Very good. I was particularly convinced by him. Wait, it might have been that. I don't know. It was that Jessica Alba swimming movie he was in. Because he's a scientist in that, right? Well, he's a marine biologist in Out of the Blue. Oceanography. Out of the Blue, yeah. And Out of the Blue, he's he's all about the mathematics. He's researching pirate uh, treasure. Give me the line again, Dingus, because I think I know this one. Mathematics. It's the only true universal language. Walter Matthau's Einstein in the Meg Ryan movie, IQ, Tim Robbins. No. Uh, I don't know if you're doing Serious Man, but I don't think so. So I'm going to say I don't know. I know, because he's a teacher. But he's, he's uh, yeah, I don't know then. I, I have not seen this movie. It's not Serious Man, but Tom was pretty clear that, that uh, what what a scientist is could be up for debate. So. What about anyway, John Stewart in The Faculty? Is he a scientist? Scientist. Yes, Paul. He's a speed scientist. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know right, what, Dingus? I think. Uh, please tell I me want it's time not, to guess it. Please tell me it's not uh, Jeff Goldblum. It's not Jeff Goldblum. Okay. Okay. In that here's, case, I don't a, know. Here's an obvious quote from it, and this is the first time I'd heard this, which uh, shows you how much I knew in 1997. Occam's Razor. You ever heard of it? Wait, wait, wait. We know this. This is an obvious, stupid, obvious one. Not stupid yeah. dingus, but like, we're stupid for not knowing. Contact? Yes, good, Tom. Very good. Dingus. What? <laughs> I know. What? I knew, I knew, whoa, I was pretty whoa, sure whoa. Dingus was going to bring this one up. Oh, she's <laughs> in a horrible sign. She gets owned by McConaughey? Boo. <laughs> That's not science. She's wearing headphones. She's not, you don't wear headphones when you do that. What? All right, Dingus, what makes her convincing to you? Because I love her so much. Enough to see the beaver? Whoa! Oh, hey, God. Tom. Where's that one, two, she three gets, song? Uh, I hate that character. She gets. She doesn't ask the aliens anything. She gets totally bitched by Matthew McConaughey at the fucking Congress. Oh, I hate you know that movie. Kelly Wand, I'm with you, but let's hear Dingus out. Dingus, why? Yeah. What? What makes this your number two pick? What do you so like about Ellie or whatever her name is? And you know, her name's Ellie Arroway, and I love her. I love her. Although Arroway constantly, I, every time I see that movie, I think, is that backwards for nowhere or something? What's this, what's Arroway? Mm. Mm. Um, it's not backwards for anything no. uh, except Yarrowai. Um, I just, I, I love her as a scientist. I love how uh, she gives her, she devotes her life to finding out this thing in order to um, reconnect with her father. I mean, her her search for science is about a search for truth, and she spends her entire life doing it. And it's not just pushing a bunch of buttons. It's it's sitting there and listening to the universe and working out mathematics and trying to figure out where we are in the galaxy. And I think she's a great scientist. Kelly Wand, rebuttal. Dude, 
any scientist who says universe. Did she say it like universe? Excellent rebuttal. Wait, wait. If the universe is so big, it's an awful waste of space or something. This is like six fucking times that movie. She gets that from her dad. I love, I love her confusion before Congress. I love the way she's brought up short in that hole, and it's it's a very childish, uh, or not childish, but facile filmmaker thing that, um, you know, she sees what she sees, and then everybody, she asks, asks everybody to take it on faith, and she gets an understanding of faith in that way, or oh. gets an understanding of, of, of the role faith has to play in science in a way that she doesn't understand earlier. And I just, I, I love the way uh, Jodie Foster plays her. She's curious and interested, and she's still this, this strong character and still in pain throughout the movie. Uh, I think it's a great scientist. Uh, can I rebuttal again? Go ahead, on, rebuttal. Uh, would a real scientist have gone... Oh yeah, I there's ha- eight hours of recording video, uh, and James Wood said it on screen, and the black chick said it. Uh, Jada, no wait. Uh, no, you're right. She should have just swam nude in front of a human centipede. <laughs> Kelly, one rebuttal to that. Worst scientist ever. Worst scientist ever. Worst Say it scientist again. ever. Keep saying Worst. it. Worst, worst, worst. Kelly Wand, I think we should give Dingus homework and make him watch The Beaver. I already did. Earlier tonight. You saw The Beaver? You did not. No, you didn't, Dingus. Did you watch it tonight? Was there more science? (laughs) I didn't watch it. Not the movie, no. Dingus, quit trying to do Kelly Wandisms. They don't become you. I keep trying it. I'm going to do my Keanu Reeves in a minute. <laughs> All right, so Dings' is number two most convincing scientist is Jodie yeah, Foster in very Contact. Very convincing. All right. Very, very convincing, the way she always fails at everything. By the way, my if we ever have a three-by-three three for most convincing alien, I'm going to pick David Strathern from Contact, just That's so you good. guys know. Who did he play? No, it was David Morse, fool. Yeah. You guys are uh-huh. so good at this. <laughs> Wait a minute. David Strathern is not the alien dad in Contact? No, David Morse. Oh, man. Wow. Dad. It's the killer. I like I like Contact even less than I thought I liked it. I fucking want to murder that movie. All right. Uh, well, let's no fa- What's this? Oh, 90% of the world. Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand. It's, so it's, Robert, it's Robert Zemeckis. It's all you need to know. Yeah, that's true, actually. That's, that would have been the only rebuttal you needed. But no, he had to prattle on about this and that. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go with my number two, and I'm going to get into some serious science now. This is Michael Crichton science, and it's not, it's no. no. <laughs> I got Dingus. Dingus, you can awesome. sit back. I'll handle this. I'll Dingus. handle this. I can't believe it. It is not Jurassic Park, so you button that up right now, young man. <laughs> Please. This is, this is free Jurassic Park Michael Crichton. It's not just Michael Crichton, it's Robert Wise. Who I'd look this guy up because he was making movies back in the days of black and white. Uh, this is a 1971 science fiction. You know what? I'm just going to take off fiction. It didn't really happen, but it's a science movie, and it's only fiction because it didn't really happen. It's not fiction because it couldn't happen, like Star Wars. It's fiction because it just hasn't happened yet. So this is just a flat-out science movie, 1971, called Andromeda Strain. And back in those days, all the scientists were frumpy-looking 40-year-olds. They were not Hollywood kind of celebrity types. You watch Andromeda Strain now, you're not going to know who any of those dudes are. And my favorite scientist out of here 
the book that Michael Crichton wrote, which is about what if this satellite gets some infectious organism on it and it crashes to Earth and people can catch it. So they, they create this facility to study it. And it's about these scientists studying this extraterrestrial virus. Uh, so all the scientists in the book are men. But when they made the movie, it was suggested that one of the characters should be a woman. Now, I would hear that normally, and i go, oh, that's kind of silly. And that's, that's that slippery slope that's going to lead us to the, the made-for-TV Andromeda strain, which all had, like, gorgeous 20-something actors playing the scientists uh, a couple years ago. Uh, but here, so they decide to make one scientist a woman, but she was a really convincing scientist, I, I thought. It, she's a, a British stage actress. She was 40 when they shot it. Her name was Kate Reed. Uh, she looks kind of like Shelley Winters. Uh, she was uh, she she actually in the movie is the one who kind of screws things up. Um, and so Stupid much women, Stupid <laughs> women, Just but so robots much, out of them. So much of that Andromeda Strain movie, it's kind of dated, but it's sort of like you know this is what like computers looked like back then. I mean, it's like a great period piece because it's from a whole other period. But it's just watching these people do science and study this this virus. And it's about the process of them going into this containment facility uh, and what they have to do, what they have to deal with to study this unknown situation. And actually, the opening scenes of Andromeda Strain are really, like, weird and scary um, because this, this virus has arrived and it's wiped out this small town. Uh, and it's these scientists looking around the town where they discover two survivors who then go into this containment facility. And the rest of the movie is about them studying the disease. Um, so my, my second most convincing scientist is Kate Reed uh, as the obligatory female scientist added to the Andromeda Strain movie. All right, rebuttal from either of you? She was all right. <laughs> That's not a rebuttal. You, you kind of agreed you with chose she, her. She lives. Because she looks like Shelley Winters and she almost screwed everything up. Uh, no. A spinning image of Veronica Cartwright, too. Uh, because she <laughs> the, the least glamorous. Like, you know what? Uh, uh, Fantastic Voyage, I think, also made about the same time. Goofy science fiction-y stuff where they shrink all the scientists down. The obligatory female scientist in Fantastic Voyage, Raquel Welch. Mm. Oh, the antibot. Well, well, no, no. I mean, it's great for... Her, uh, clothes off it, it's not convincing, and it's great, you know, it's great for sexy time or whatever, but uh, in Andromeda Strain, they're not going to have any of that nonsense. Women were the woman, the obligatory woman character was fucking shit up in. There's like an undersea one with giant fish where it was like the woman screwed things up. And then the last dinosaur. Nah, oh yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. Sharon Stone totally fucked shit up. She was the first one to go into the sphere, wasn't she? I, I've actually never seen it. What? But that's also, Ew, that's also Sphere, bro. Uh, yeah. You gotta watch that and Event Horizon back to back and pick which I've, sphere would win. I've seen Event Horizon. <laughs> uh, all right. So is Kate Reed the dot of uh, the doctor's name or the or the scientist's name or the actress's name? She's the actress's What's... name. I don't remember any of their names in uh, the actual movie. She's Doctor Such and Such something or other. And what's so convincing about her as a scientist? I mean, aside from the fact that she looks like Shelley. That she's not glamorous, that that she is, that she just looks like a regular person. She doesn't look like an actor. None of the dudes do. I mean, uh, uh, and that the movie is just watching them do research. Uh, my number one is a better example of that, but it's it's that kind of it, it's not a traditional let's just do some technical mumbo jumbo talk and then have action sequences. You know, the the latter half of the Andromeda Strain movie is just watching people look at screens and talk about what they're seeing and putting together data. Andromeda Strain, you could make the argument that it's boring. 
And that's why that's why I find that's it. That's why it's good. That's so what it's convincing. It's, it's looks and boring. Yeah. And so if, if that character had been played by somebody good looking, you wouldn't have picked it. It's well, an it's, ugly woman looking at boring shit on a, under a microscope <laughs> for an hour, and therefore, <laughs> therefore, that's a convincing. Song. That's how they made thrillers back in the early stuff. All right. That's 70s filmmaking. We can't afford all these slides. Said so if she had been played by somebody who's good-looking, would you have chosen that? No, because that the, right. the counterpart is Raquel Welch. As one of the scientists, they shrink down in Fantastic Voyage. And that's not convincing to me to have an international sex model, symbol. sex symbol, yes, playing your scientist. That's like Denise Richards as a nuclear physicist. It would make uh, sense if they were making her super big, though, because then we could all be inside her at the same time. Mm, Kelly Wand. What? It's science. <laughs> I am a scientist, like my father before me. We're a dynasty of scientists. Kelly Wand, what's your number one favorite choice for the most convincing scientist in all of moviedom? Uh, who's the shittiest scientist to you in Hollow Man, by the way? <laughs> it would be Elizabeth Chu. Was Elizabeth Chu one of the scientists? Yeah. Right. Wasn't she the? Wasn't she on the? Uh, I'm going to say Kim Dickey. Who? Remember, there was a vet scientist. I'm going to say Paul Verhoeven. Mm. Good pick, Dingus. But his science on RoboCop's airtight. Anyway, my number one pick's kind of similar to Tom's, but. Tom, oh, can I can I guess what you're going to pick? Yeah, go. Because I almost is, think is this picked. is this a movie with scientists and none of them are women? Uh, you think so, yeah. Wait a minute, you think so? You would know definitely. Oh, then yes, I'm so sure. Does um, one of them short out a computer using scotch? <laughs> no. I wasn't, I didn't know if those guys were scientists or not. Well, what else are they doing there? I don't know, maybe they're fucking like, miners, like Sam Rockwell. What are they mining from Antarctica? Snow. They're mining snow in, in 1982. Because that's and another class. Elizabeth Winstead's a Norwegian. That's another <laughs> clearly <laughs> mining Ice Nine. <laughs> that's another one that you've talked about, Kelly Wan, where it's, you know, this is back when 40-year-old men were scientists and you didn't need the obligatory. And Wilford like, yeah, and this but was is the black. But the black dude wasn't the scientist. Well, they had like a cook, and then McCready, of course, is the helicopter pilot. They weren't all scientists, but right. the the outpost in Antarctica and the thing, they're they're scientists studying uh, snow. But he's not a scientist. He's a pilot. <laughs> right, he's a pilot, and then Windows. I think that's the the cook's name. He's just the cook. You know, they're not all scientists. Need a support staff as well. But Winstead's is she a scientist in the other thing? We're gonna find out, aren't we? I don't know. I don't know if I want to see that. You that. you know you do. Don't lie. All right. Well, what's your number one pick? I thought you were going to pick that. I was hoping it would be on your list, but no, because he's you not a scientist, to... and then none of the other guys. No, I know you we wanted to be impressed. for Jeffrey Combs and Dieter Laser. I understand. <laughs> Way more well, number one, except for well, who was the scientist in Tentacles when we watched that together? Oh, uh, not Henry Fonda, because he was the evil corporate industrialist guy. Uh, you know what? I, well, I don't want to say anything because it, it might ruin another pick. So let's save it for the runners-up. Tell us what your number one is. My number one's actually Henry Fonda, but in The Swarm. Do you remember his big scene in that movie? <laughs> uh, I don't, but that's actually a movie I kind of want to go back and watch again. Oh, please do. And Okay, he's only in one scene, and he's like a biologist or something. <laughs> and uh, That's called, yeah. the word for that, Kelly Wand, is apiary. He's an apiary. <laughs> Wait, I thought those were the hedges that you're shaped like animals. <laughs> He's, a He's a biologist. He's a biologist. 
And his big scene, his Oscar-winning scene, I think he won his sixth Oscar for it, is he starts a tape recorder and a webcam, because even though it's 1976, and he's all, okay, I'm going to, I think I found a cure for the bees, for the swarm bee stings, so I'm going to inject myself with it, and uh, I'll let you know how I'm doing. Okay, I've injected myself with it. Okay, it really hurts. I'm dying. Uh, fuck, I can't believe this is the worst night of my life. Oh, my fucking God, this is the worst. Okay, now it really, really hurts. Before, I thought it hurt, and now it's seriously fucking hurting. Okay, my arm's now swelling up like a giant kabasa. Kasaba? A kabasa melon? <laughs> and then I think he passes out. He dies. All right. All right, Henry, like the to... most convincing scientist. All right, my number one. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a quote with this. It's Carcharodon carcarius. See, that's why I didn't want to talk about tentacles, because there's a far better example of uh, that character. And whatever is in tentacles is the equivalent of the Matt Hooper. I, I think you might as well just go straight to Matt Hooper. So, uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. It's Matt Hooper from Jaws, and I just love the way Richard Dreyfuss plays that part and the way he's this great little nevishy scientist who has to go on the ship, and he has a whole bunch of problems. Um, he's not like this perfect, uh, dashing scientist hero, and uh, he really loves his science. Um, so there you go, Matt Hooper. I think we all love that movie, and that's easy to go with. He also do- pones Quint. Like, he gets the last word always. It's like the scientist beating the hunter. Yeah, but he can only do it when Quint's not looking, though. <laughs> so it doesn't really count. Like, if you flip the guy off when the guy's not looking at you. He didn't see the styrofoam cup. Did you do that in front of him? Uh, I think he saw the styrofoam cup, but couldn't have cared less. But when he's flipping Quint off and giving and you know doing the faces at him, Quint's not looking. And Quint's the one that makes him drive the boat. See, they, I mean, there's this great sort of tension there. I mean, they have the whole argument about... Uh, you know, he's got hands soft from, is it counting money? I forget what he even says. Like, uh, and Quint's asking him to tie certain knots. Uh, yeah, yeah I love the tension between them. Yeah, it's but been a while since I had to do basic seamanship. Yeah. But, right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he's convincing as a certain type of scientist, I think, and it's like Dingus mentions, like he's personally driven to study something, but one of the weird little details about Hooper, and I don't know if this is from the book, but they certainly mention it in the movie, is that he's a privileged kid, you know, is that he's, he comes from a lot of money, so he gets to buy this equipment, and even though he works at the Woods Hole Institute, you know, he gets to sort of like write checks for all the, that, like that big fancy boat that he has, Um no, you definitely get the they... sense that he's he's a rich kid in the yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, why don't they go out on his big fancy boat instead of Quint's rust bucket? And why doesn't he have a better shark cage if he's so fucking... It's a great shark cage. What are you talking about? It's made out of adamantium. <laughs> Did you know that was like a real shark where it's coming from behind him? That one too. Well, they used real footage of a, of a diver in a cage in that, yeah. In that scene. Uh, and actually, you know what? Why didn't they take... I know there's an answer for this. Why didn't they take Hooper's badass boat? Is it because they... Well, it's because they'd hired Quint to kill the shark because he would know how to do it. Uh, and Quint probably would want no part of that, that badass boat. Am I right well, about Hooper, that? Well, didn't Hooper just... I, I don't think he came down on his boat, did he? Didn't, I mean, I don't think he had time to. Well, no, it's he his was, boat. He Brody out on it. Yeah, they're on his boat when they find Ben Gardner's boat. boat. Oh, okay. Uh, but I don't know. I think it's just because they hire Quint, and the condition is that they bring along Hooper and the, that uh, Brody gets to go. Uh, so yeah. because it's basically Quint's gig, they're taking his boat. But he gets some the money, of the- uh, 
now that Quint's dead, and he was the one who wanted the money, so he could buy a bigger. The uh, Quint's Quint's sidekick who stayed home. Oh, remember that Steve? little guy? I don't know no. what his name was. Oh. <laughs> the teeth. No, Quint had a sidekick who's there in the town hall meeting with him, who's helping him load up the boat. Uh, it's just this sort of like shriveled little sailor dude. Droog. <laughs> Why is All he right. going out with him? Uh, because he stays home and minds the shop for Quint. Because he's got all those, like, shark jaws boiling in the pots and whatnot, you see? Oh, uh, yeah. That's what he eats for dinner. The gums. All right, so good. That was on my runners-up. I'm going to cross that off now. That was my number one, and then I replaced the last segment with Henry Fonda because I go, eh, Matt Hooper's too obvious. Well, the swarm and jaws, they have a lot in common. I can understand. Yeah. Because that was uh, after Matt Hooper had opened the way for Henry Fonda. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, my number one, I guess, I'm guessing you guys haven't seen this. Has either of you seen Primer? Yeah. So I love in Primer. Now, technically, they're engineers in Primer. So let me get this out of the way right off the bat. Uh, it's about some young engineers working out of a garage, um, and they're studying. And the funny, the cool thing about Primer is they never just flat out say what they're studying. And even as the movie progresses, nobody ever really sits down and explains anything. There's never any science exposition. Everything you know about the science and primer is from these great fly-on-the-wall scenes where you just hear them talking about technical stuff, and you kind of have to deduce what's going on. Primer ultimately becomes a movie, and I apologize this is a spoiler. It's been out for a while, so uh, Primer ultimately becomes a movie about time travel, and they never really say, you know, here's a, a time travel gimmick. Like, all of it is sort of talked around because it's assumed. They know what they're talking about. There's a lot of technical jargon, and you just get to deduce from what they're saying in the tone of their voice the importance of what they're talking about. There is one point, you know, in Back to the Future, when Doc Brown talks about time travel, he goes to a blackboard, and he does a big old line drawing thing about the different timelines. There's one point in uh, Primer where a guy writes on a, on a piece of paper. It's just kind of like a doodle almost, a little sort of cycle, a little circle. Uh, to sort of explain this recursive time trick that they've stumbled on. Um, but Primer doesn't explain itself. Uh, the science, you just get to sit and watch these guys talk about it. They're impassioned about it. They care about it. They obviously know a lot about it. Uh, and what I really like, though, about the portrayal of science in Primer is that the thing they discover, the time travel, isn't what they're researching. There's this idea that science is stuff that happens accidentally, is that you don't sit down like Jeff Goldblum and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna discover a teleporter. Is that you're doing something else and along the way, whoa, holy cats, we've stumbled across you know penicillin or radiation or whatever, uh, and that's how this time travel bit comes about in Primer, uh, and it's kind of unique for how that process is presented in Primer in a way that it's not in other movies. Um, I love how it captures the sort of the tone and spirit of scientific discovery. So there's my number one, the scientists slash engineers and primer. So it's all of the scientists? Well, there's two leads. The two lead characters, the, uh, uh, it's the two leads. You know what? I would probably say the main, his name is Shane, not Satterfield. Uh, I would say it's the main actor who also directed primer. Uh, you know what? I would say it's the two leads in primer. I'm picking two scientists technically. Okay. So there you go. So in... In the fly too, did they know? Did did that society have teleportation from the first movie, or did they kind of? There's a fly too. Yeah. Did David no, Eric Stoltz? No. No, I know, but 
did society at large have telepods all over the place? Because, you know, if you don't get a fly in, it works. I mean, Are you guys making this up? A, There's really a fly, too, with Eric Stoltz? Yeah, with Daphne yeah. Zuniga. Oh, my God. Is it awful? It's, yeah, it's yeah. horrible. <laughs> Here's, you, yeah. know, you want to hear the ending? So you yeah. know how lame it is. Yeah, I do. At the end, he turn, he goes into the telepod as like a maggot fly monster, and then he comes out, Eric Stoltz, even though he's it's like it cures him. Uh, in what movie does Eric Stoltz play a scientist who swallows a bee and is out of commission for the entire movie? Anaconda. <laughs> Very good, Kelly Wand. You win the... Uh, that's my number one. Wait, that's an awesome movie. Oh fuck! Wait, God, what? Anaconda too late. A scientist might swallow a bee and therefore J-Lo be unavailable for the rest yeah. of the movie. Uh, he you swallows guys... a water bee because the John Voight puts the bee in the snorkel tube, doesn't he? I don't think John Voight is actually sabotaging them at that point. I think it's just a yeah, bee just... accidentally gets into his gear. No, no, really? no, no. Okay, I need to watch Anaconda more closely. You're right. I think John Voight fucks him over with this with the sea bee. <laughs> uh, J-Lo keeps looking at him like you had to have done that okay I'll, I'll defer to your anaconda knowledge uh, do you guys know a movie with Rachel Weiss called Agora yeah where she plays Hypatia yeah uh, I don't I don't care for that movie but I, I like I respect the fact that the movie is about a woman who discovered the ellipse in, yeah in, like early science and uh, you know what happened to her you know her final fate she got she got stoned I it uh I think it was even worse than that. Like she got they just flayed her. Like they killed her really horribly. And she was like this awesome scientist. Why didn't you put her on your list? Well she's not in the movie. I didn't see the I didn't want to see that in a movie. <laughs> it is a pretty clumsy movie, yeah. Uh it is, it is I don't know. We're hmm? a terrible species. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, other runners up. Nobody nobody wanted to pick William Hurt from Altered States. No, nah, because he's a dumbass. I <laughs> see. I kept dumbasses off. That's why I couldn't pick Jeff Goldblum because he's like he didn't notice the flies. Like if he was a good scientist, he would have noticed there was a fly. Because flies make noise too. They buzz around. They kind of make themselves. Right. So does Richard Attenborough count as a dumbass in Jurassic Park? Then is that why he didn't make your list? He's like uh, I thought he was just the tour guide. <laughs> right. He's the guy who stands there and says "Welcome to Jurassic Park" in that sort of yeah. mellifluous accent of his. Right. I thought the scientist was the guy who says clever girl. Uh, he's the naturalist. Uh, Dingus, runners up for you? Uh, I love Zach Hobson from The Quieter. Oh, yeah. Is he a scientist? I guess, wait, I guess he is. That's right, because he's at work doing he's science. He's a geneticist, yeah. When the world ends, yeah. All right. Um, I like Nikola Tesla in uh, Prestige. Oh, that's right. David Bowie was supposed to be Nikola Tesla. <laughs> I forgot about that. And then Dr. Uh, Robert Neville in I Am Legend. That guy is always, like, working on viruses and stuff. He's not a scientist. He's an action hero. He's a urologist. How dare you? <laughs> a urologist? A, yeah, he's a urologist. <laughs> Wait. I can't have figure this out. Show. Testing urine. Oh, damn it. <laughs> what about uh, Aragorn? I mean, Aomer in Star Trek. His bones. Carl hmm. Urban. He's not a scientist. He's a doctor. Damn it. Damn it, he's a doctor. But they're I thought doctors are medical scientists. Uh, I love the take on sort of naturalists in Troll Hunter. Like the guy, he's he's kind of like part forest ranger, but there's also this sense that he's a naturalist, like a scientist studying trolls. Uh, I love that guy. 
he would be on my short list of runners-up. Samantha Mathis and uh, Broken Arrow, the Forest Ranger scientist. Uh, Dingus, you recently saw Red Riding Hood. Oh, how was that? How'd that work out for you there, Dingus? Dingus loved it. There's one point where... Uh, so one of the really cool things in Angels and Insects is, because it's Victorian England, uh, Kirsten Scott Thomas, she wants to study ants, and she, she draws them. So there's, and Mark Rylance appreciates that this is a crucial part of scientific study, are these illustrations, because they can't, of course, take pictures of things back then. There's one point in Red Riding Hood, and I can't tell if it was supposed to be a joke or if I was even reading it right, where the werewolf attacks the town, and you cut to some guy sketching the werewolf while it's attacking. <laughs> Really? <laughs> and then the, the werewolf like kills him or something. I forget. But it's like the cell phone picture of. Exactly, exactly. That's like the YouTube video. That's the that's the ancient equivalent of a YouTube video. Of the werewolf attack is the guy sketching the, the werewolf. Do you remember or Lovecraft? That? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so disgusted with that. I was doing several other things at the time. By that time. The guy at the end of a Lovecraft story writing, well, it's, it's coming through the window now. Okay, the glass is shattering. Uh, I got glass in my eyes. Can barely write. I'm going insane, by the way. Uh, Shub Niggerot. Uh, That's the literary equivalent of found footage. Right. See? Uh, is there any good... So, Dave, why didn't you pick Helen Mirren from 2010? I was leaving that one to you. Uh, I was afraid you guys would criticize me because she's too pretty. Ah, right. She's no Kate Reed. She doesn't do any science in the movie either. Isn't she, she a scientist? Do science. What is she in that movie? An She's an astronaut. Those aren't scientists, are they? Uh -huh. They're like they're scientist pilots, like we went over in Apollo 18. <laughs> yeah, those guys in Apollo 18, they didn't make you guys list either, huh? Well, why would you bring up no. Richard Attenborough when you're talking about Jurassic Park and not um, no. Sam Neill? Yeah. Adjust your adjust your mic real quick, Laura by the way. Because uh, Sam Neill's too good looking. Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about Phase Four? Is there any good science? I don't. I, I seem to recall there's lots of cool like watching them do science not to kill our ants in Phase Four. You guys remember that? There is, and there's a lot of like moving of equipment and trying to distribute heat and whatnot. That's like science. That's part of what you do in science. Yeah. When you were when you were talking about Andromeda strain and watching people look at screens, um, what I had initially thought of was Apollo 13 because one of the things I liked about that movie was how there's like a lot of people doing math equations and somehow that's exciting. But I don't think guys doing math equations really counts as. What about Beautiful Mind, Russell Crowe guy, when he Ugh. goes in and sees the cryptography? Yeah, I agree with Dick. I agree with Dick as well. And so does Shadowcat. That's, so my cat. Yeah. That's how they turn science into mainstream entertainment. And nobody picked uh, Ash or Bishop. They're not scientists. Because they're, they're artificial persons? I guess oh, Ash is. Racist. <laughs> Bishop just plays Mumbledy Peg and flies the boat. Doesn't he? And plus he's too good looking. Yeah, too good looking. Uh, other runners up? I, you, nobody pick. I, I, I'm going to put Paul Walker in eight blocks. I think he's a scientist when he goes to Antarctica to rescue those, those uh, dogs. I think Paul Walker, Bruce Greenwood, they're they're Antarctic scientists. They're studying snow. Oh, so there you go. go. Yeah. No, no two snowflakes are alike, so it takes forever to study them. Uh, have you seen this Paul Walker movie where he is like a kid and he has like a twin? 
and they're like, yeah, dude. And they get mistaken for forest yeah. rangers, but they're like skateboard punks or something. Wow. No, I haven't. Should I ask again? I don't know. I thought you'd seen all of his work, so I thought you might. Uh, would you call um, Bradley Cooper a scientist in Limitless? Yeah. No. Fine. <laughs> I got to change my number one. Jesus. God, no. No, he <laughs> makes the pill himself. Have you Spoiler seen that alert. yet, Tom? Yeah, he does. He does a lot of investigation. Does yeah. he, he does some. He does some drug testing. He's uh, a writer. He's, but he's yeah, really, but he he's super smart. Like scientists are smart. He yeah. knows how to work science too, though, because he's yeah. smart. Right. He he's everything. Science. He's not just a scientist. He's a he's everything. Because yeah. limitless, you see. And he's he a jack it. of all sciences. That's true, and he's not good looking. So yeah, I'll, I'll no, he's that. not good looking. That's so before they give him a haircut. Yeah, pretty haircut. He's not good looking. Yeah. Uh, all right. It's like uh, Murdoch was the scientist on the A Team, Tom's favorite movie of 2000. Mm. Mm. I love the new Mr. T. All right, everyone. So, uh, it, what is our any other rumors up? Don't want to cut anyone off. No, I think we should move on because we're losing you, Tom. So we should yeah, move on to horrible. Kelly's Go Kelly's back. three by three. All right. Right. Uh, so, Kelly, now, what is our three by three for next week? What do you got for us? Okay, uh, remember that one time when I said the scene in Halloween where uh, Michael Myers ha- is coming at the chick with glasses on, he's pretending he's a ghost, which means that prior to that, there should have been a scene set to the Halloween theme where he like puts on the glasses. No, uh, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> and that's all that matters for this, because... I, this 3x3 three three is pick three scenes from movies that you either like or hate, and you fill in a scene that's not in the movie. Like an interstitial scene that wasn't in there that you wish you'd seen. Does that make sense? Uh, are you talking about a scene that you feel like should have come before that's missing? Yeah. Something that you obsess over. Like, wait, it would have made sense if they'd put that in. If Greedo had fired first earlier in the movie in another scene and I would have accepted it for example that's more continuous. is that is that too confusing if it, if it's too confusing I'll I have a backup no there's no backups you, you put that out there that's what we're gonna do well I don't want you to just be perplexed all we can go wait what the fuck are we doing <laughs> how is that different from any other three library well everyone I don't know but I don't want if you guys think it's just boring too then I can No, so what how how are you phrasing it, Kelly Wan? Is it three scenes that we wished we'd seen or three so sum sum it up for us. What's the what's the little package? It's okay. I'm gonna make it even vaguer. <laughs> instead, of, <laughs> instead of narrowing it in, I'm gonna expand it even more complicated. It can be a scene that doesn't exist in a movie that you feel should, or it can be a scene that exists and you continue the scene for, like, the next two to five minutes, whatever you feel is worth uh, talking about on a podcast, like, that's not in the movie. All right, eliminate that second thing. Really? <laughs> Maybe that's even better, though. Because, like, Luke looking at the suns, and then, like, okay, five minutes after that, what's he doing? <laughs> sun explodes. Right, sun explodes. Can you just, Kelly Wan, give us the title for the 3 by 3 Oh, 3 by 3 scenes that aren't in movies that you wish were in the movies. Okay, I'm cutting it off right there. Good. Scenes that aren't in movies that you wish were in movies. Okay? Right. But, like, not... not but uh, you, you started with, like, 
picking I'm a specific scene and that we that you felt like there should be a scene before that scene. But now you're just saying a scene that we wish was in a movie. Before or after a scene that's in a movie. Alright. <laughs> well let's see what happens. Well yeah, yeah. We'll we'll just see what happens. We'll come with a nine examples of that next week and see what we got. How's that? What how can it suck? With exactly. So, exactly. 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 Uh, speaking of, of sucking, how about we see next week Red State? What do you guys think of that? Oh boy, Kevin Smith. So when's he ever disappointed us? <laughs> well, we'll find out how well he holds up. Uh, we'll be seeing Red State, which is, uh, I think, in limited release. There's plenty of video on demand options to see it. Uh, if you saw it here in LA in the last, I guess, week or so, there was Q and A afterwards with Mr. Smith himself. Um, which so ones, did he do the Q's or the A's? He would ask questions and He'd the, ask audience, questions. Would answer the audience would answer them. Right. <laughs> Anyone know what I meant by that? Because I really am stuck. Uh, so we will see that, and then we will be back with three scenes we wish were in movies but weren't. Uh, as like a, specific movies, like not. Oh, I wish more movies. Another one. Had... You have to stop explaining. We are going <laughs> to go with this where it goes. Uh, we'll just see what happens. More wardrobe uh, changes like that. Specific way. movies, not general movies. But what the actual wardrobe change was. Uh, all right, good. Yeah, let's see what happens. We'll, 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 we'll string that one up and uh, run it up a poll. And you're going to listen. <laughs> That's what she said. Uh, I'm Tom Chick, and I have been joined by Christian Merlarkey, I think. Christian Merlarkey. Merlarkey. That's pretty good, actually. It's actually Christian Morosky, though. It sounds better when Tom's voice all tweaked. And Kelly Wan. Oh, Body Switch movie, uh, The Invisible Man, and uh, Zelig. And they're trying to get through Right There's no single explanation There's no central destination These cars go This long line of cars Is trying to get through That is me And this long line of cars Distance Is all because of you Oh, body switch movie, uh, Nostradamus and Galileo. Because see, that way one, he discovers his faith, astrology-wise, and the other guy. So it's like Jodie Foster in contact discovers that... Uh, if I could throw your computer in jail, I would. 